<laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. <laughs> Trying a little something different. I don't know if that maybe I was introducing WrestleMania or something. I'm um, Patrick Rapol. I'm Jim Laskowski. I'm a little dumbfounded right now. <laughs> and we have a very special guest with us this evening. Um, I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited to introduce our guest. It's Mr. Kurt Halfyard. Hey, Kurt. How's it going? How you doing, guys? All right. Good. Good. Yeah, I'm doing uh, great. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan of the uh, Cinecast podcast and of Row3.com. Uh, you write for you write for a couple other sites, Kurt? Correct. Yeah, I've been writing for Twitch pretty much since the website started. I don't know if you go to Twitch Film. It's sort of a yeah. genre international film website, mm-hmm. and uh, and then Row Three. Yeah, great. That's yeah. basically it. Yeah, I've, I've, as I told Andrew, I've been a huge fan of the of the Cinecast, and you know, um, I, I especially love you know the. You, you you definitely respect movies as an art form, and you have this all-encompassing knowledge on many directors and genres, and almost on every episode I learn something new every time. So uh, I'm excited to talk about the director of this episode, Mr. White Michael Winterbottom, today. So we'll have plenty of good things to say. We do have a few in-house items we need to attend to. Patrick? Yeah, real quick. Um, as we announced last episode, we're having a contest uh, we want to get to know our listeners. We want to get to know what get you guys... Get to know us. Exactly. What you guys like about the show, what you guys want us to do, that sort of thing. So uh, we got, we're got we having you guys email us information, and then in return we're having a contest where you can win anything you want off, off of Amazon that's up to $30. Um, it, all the information is on the, podca- on the podcast website, directorsclubpodcast.com. But uh, just real quick... Basically, send us an email uh, with your name, you know, first name and last initials. Fine, we just some- need something to announce the winner. Uh, your general area, your location, your age, uh, your favorite movie, your favorite episode of this podcast, and uh, the director you'd most like us to cover. And obviously, you know, directors that we have covered already or that are on our schedule to be covered don't uh, apply. Unless you really want us to do a sequel, we understand. Yeah, and if, in that case, I would recommend uh, I then if you really, really want us to do a second, like uh, second episode on a director, Joseph Losey. Yeah, second <laughs> Joseph Losey episode or something. Just let us know what yeah. what you want us to do. Um, We're so, just interested in, in your feedback. Yeah, so uh, first and you foremost. know, yeah. So, but we we know it takes time or whatever, and we so we put a little incentive. So you'll be entered. Uh, we'll announce the winner. Um, Probably on uh, the, the Christopher, uh, Christopher Nolan. Nolan episode. Yeah. Towards the end of August. Yeah. So that's uh, – get your emails in and we look forward to uh, sharing those. Yeah. Anyway, okay. and then Jim, you had something that you keep teasing I, I, me I did. Um, about announcing. You know, in exactly three hours, July is over. Yes. And uh, thus concluding your shit-tacular <laughs> that you um, inflicted upon me. Yeah. And just said, oh, and myself, and yeah, myself. Of course, it was of course. mutually assured destruction. Yeah, and you know we watched a lot of shitty movies, and maybe we could have watched more. But after a while, it did get a little bit tiring, <laughs> or just um, I'm going to plan better next time. Yeah, it was more of a spur of the moment I mean, thing. And it's going to be a yearly tradition. I'm up yeah. for it next time. I'm up for a more organized version of the shittacular. And yeah. I was grateful for a couple of the movies that. Uh, I had the displeasure of watching. <laughs> I, I saw Hollywood Homicide. I loved it. Uh, that's that's good. 
I was not expecting to like that movie at all. I'm I sure really it was a lot it. better than The Sex Monster. I'm sure. <laughs> which I unfortunately subjected myself to. Thank you, Mr. Kevin Pollack. Um, anyway, <laughs> I had this idea. How do you guys define shittacular? Oh, um, yeah. well, hold on. Let me, let me find the post. But basically, it's anything that is shitty, looks shitty, or is a movie that I know I won't like. Yeah. So, um... It's even if it's movie that is generally well like I think like something like Avatar would even apply. I didn't I didn't watch Avatar, but it just seems like a movie I would hate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so even though that movie is generally well received, it it was kind of inspired by the. So fact. it's an act of masochism. Is that's what absolutely it is? yeah absolutely and it's yeah. and mostly I mean again we didn't we didn't really go to the, or the full extent of what we could have but. Uh, uh, I think I think part of the fun is sort of all the different kinds of bad movies there are, um, and yeah. different reasons movies are bad and stuff like that. And now with Netflix Instant, it is so easy to uncover lost uh, <laughs> treasures. I yeah. guess you could say. Um, but well, you know, I don't know who's. But the quote is: eight percent of everything is crap." So yeah, yeah <laughs> there's yeah, plenty yeah. of bad movies to pick from. Oh, for sure. For sure, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of inspired, but, you know. Like July is the big summer blockbuster. You know, it's sort of that time of year where we're just inundated with big blockbusters, and we're neither of us are gigantic fans of going to see all these, you know, the comic book movies that have come out and things like that. I mean, I'm sure there have been some some good stuff here. I heard and there. good things about both the X Men and Captain America. Yeah, movies. yeah, and I'm sure they've got redeeming qualities, but I'm not as excited about those as I am about the art house stuff. Right. You know, but I, I mean, like I said, it was, it was fun <laughs> and we, we, we're probably not going to talk about all of them on this episode, but just if you want to check out uh, the blog, then you could see what we watched overall for the past I month. I tried to write up at least a little something about most of them that I watched. Yeah. Same with Jim. So. Same, same here. You'll, the teen witch tweets are a treat if yeah. you're interested in that. <laughs> Anyway, uh, for my idea, I was thinking in the month of December, let's let's do a little reversal of the shittacular. Uh-huh. Um, I would like us for an entire month to only watch Criterion Collection movies and call it It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Criterion. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, my horrible ex- title it's be- that can be changed if you have a better title. Better. White Criterion, uh, Criterion <laughs> Bells. A Criterion Story. Criterion Wonderland. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I'm just, I w- I, I've always wanted to do that. Just, like, spend a month, go through, you know, even if we've never seen any of any of them before, any of the directors, don't know anything about them. Um, just, you know, Criterion has a lot of great shit. And I would love to spend December just uh, going through them. Yeah. Is that, you think that's a... I think it's a doable idea. And yeah. we'll have time to prepare. Right. My library has most of them. Just avoid the two Michael Bay movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that would yeah. yeah, they might be on Criterion, but Armageddon would still qualify for shittacular. Yeah. I I'll definitely watch White Material too because that's that was released on Criterion recently. So oh, was it? Yeah. There you go. There's a lot of a lot of great choices and uh I know the Barnes and Noble sale just ended as well, but uh I picked up a couple of things. Oh yeah. So. Yeah. So that's just my big announcement. Well, they for have December. that deal with IFC, right? They've got that deal with IFC that they put out a lot of contemporary stuff. So, like right. Sugar and oh, what is it? Uh, yeah. Gamora. 
Um, I think was isn't that, there's a lot of newer stuff. The Void, maybe. Okay. Um, isn't that what Life During Wartime was entered under? Like yeah. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe Fish Tank as well. I don't think. I, I certainly don't think Life During Wartime was entered in the Criterion Collection on its own merit. No, <laughs> I, I was pretty disappointed. Well, in did that. they have any other uh, uh, Todd Salant's films on the Criterion Collection? I, I thought happened. Uh, he strikes not. me as they've not really embraced. Even I mean, even if he is in there sort of wheelhouse he, he seems to be like you know they've got all the wes anderson's pretty right. much but i don't think they have welcome to the dollhouse or happiness um, palindromes or storytelling on the criterion collection yeah i would no, think happiness happiness deserves a better dvd than it they was all released well, as. welcome to the dollhouse also yeah i don't yeah none of them so uh that's surprising that's kind of sad that life during wartime is the one <laughs> yeah i was right. kind of underwhelmed but I just I did not like that movie at all. I know. It as viewed as a oddball, bizarro world version of happiness, it 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 works on that level, and I think it's more explicitly funny. Um, but yeah, it's certainly uh, yeah, it's Alice, hard to top happiness. Yeah, Alice and no. Janie's funny, but I just it felt yeah it felt mostly pointless. Yeah, I mean he's got a new movie coming out already, isn't Does it? Does he? Yeah, it's like premiering at TIFF, isn't it? His his next movie. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, you know, I, I haven't, I've, I don't think, I think happiness is the only one I truly love. Um, I think, I think life, uh, not life, I think Welcome to the Dollhouse is my favorite. Yeah. No, I, 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 I really like Welcome to the Dollhouse too, but I don't know. Palindromes I like Palindromes is extremely hated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hated, I hated storytelling and I, I hated uh, Life During Wartime and I haven't seen Palindromes. Mm. Well, <sighs> I'm sure he'll be a director we cover in the future. Yeah, yeah, probably. So why don't we go ahead and launch into the What We Watch segment. What did we watch this week? 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 All right, uh, I have sort of, I guess, my last entry on the podcast for the shit-tacular. <laughs> uh, I, my uh, girlfriend works at the works at a store that's by the mall, um, so they occasionally, all the stores at the mall get, like, passes for sneak previews of stuff that's playing at the uh, theater nearby. Mm-hmm. So we all saw, we, uh, we both saw The Change Up, starring Jason Ooh. Bateman and Ryan Reynolds, and I love Jason Bateman, and I kind of like Ryan Reynolds. And I have a higher tolerance, I know, than you um, uh, for, like, kind of just dumb, gross-out comedies. I know you hated The Hangover, um, Jim. Yes. Um, and stuff like that. I, think I that, would, I, I, again, I wouldn't use the word hate. It just didn't make me laugh well, as much as I would as use the word hate because every time I mention it, you go, <laughs> like, like, like Sideshow Bob stepping on a rake. But I didn't, do, I, I didn't do that this time. No, you didn't. Um, but... Change Up is just horrible, horrible movie. It it's a it's a high concept mo- comedy about uh, Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman switching bodies. Mm-hmm. But I think the actual high concept of it is like, what if everyone in the world was like just really dumb and an asshole? Because <laughs> there's not a single character in the movie who feels like like a real human being. Like none of them act the same. 
So it's no. not as good as in sun. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. It's, then no, it's no, it isn't. It's <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know what that what you mean by that. Well, I mean like I just think of God, everybody in, in that in that show is completely unrealistic and they're assholes and they're self absorbed. Well, no, that's a, that's a whole different thing. But like, it's just like people just yelling obscenities at each other and just saying dumb things and like. None of the gags really work, and then they devote, bodily function gags, perhaps. Yeah, they're all—it's all bad. And then they <laughs> devote—they devote like a really significant amount of time to the uh, characters and stuff. And it's—and hmm. because they're so poorly developed, it's just—it's like it was. I didn't laugh. Like I—I didn't. I don't think I even. I think I know. I laughed once. Um, the funniest person in is actually Leslie Mann, which is you oh. know. Well, yeah. No, she. She kind of stole knocked up as well. Well, you, her and Kristen Wiig. I thought you thought she stole knocked up. Yeah, I thought she was hilarious. What scene did she? In what scene did she steal the knocked bouncer up? with uh, Craig Robinson yeah. owns that scene, not her. I thought. I what does she do in that scene that steals knocked up? Well, I thought she was funny. <laughs> no, she's fine. But you thought she stole knocked up? I would say Kristen Wiig might have as well. I mean, not, I'm not saying that like they just. Ran away with wow. the movie, but their scenes are really what? strong. I, you are in another world. Wow. I don't, like, right now I'm, like, looking at you through a whole different light. That's interesting. I don't think I understand your sense of humor at all anymore. I've only seen it once, but those, <laughs> I, those I love movies Knock, stand Knock, up. That's one of my favorites, but... Yeah. Wow, that you thought Leslie well, I can't Man. even tie-break for you guys, because I've never actually seen Knocked Up, but oh, yeah. I would agree that in all these sort of comedies now, like, the new version of comedy is just people behaving like assholes to each other. Yeah. That, that seems to have turned me off a ton of comedies in the last 15 years. Um, there doesn't seem to be the same sort of... Like, I can handle narcissism or, or petty vanity or whatever, like, as a character flaw in a comedy. It seems to be necessary, but mm-hmm. it, I, they just do it so bluntly in American yeah. comedy that I pretty much avoid them all together well, now. I mean, yeah, I, you every wanna... now and again, they'll slip something through. And the same holds true for horrible bosses. It's kind of in that same vein. And then, uh, well, here's here's one of the fucking things I always hate in movies. Now they'll always do this retarded thing where it's like, uh, oh, and then I gave her the old, I gave her the old gorilla Sanchez. What's a gorilla Sanchez? Oh, and then they explain uh, like this thing that doesn't exist that yeah. no one in history has ever done. Or it's like, oh, you shove her fist up her ass and you slam her into the ceiling fan and then blood pours out of your nose, like. I, <laughs> That doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't. I mean, and yet you're you total- can thank Kevin Smith for that. Yeah, that is totally Kevin Smith thing. Yeah, the I, first one I could think of. No, that's that's probably like it. Like the sort of the generation of you know, like Seth Rogen and those people. They grow up, and like Clerks was a huge, I'm sure, mm-hmm. huge movie for them. Um, yeah, I recently yeah, re- rewatched Watershed of bad sex nicknames. No, you're right. Uh, yeah, I yeah. I never even considered how much how influential because I know his movies are never that big, and he's kind of annoying person. But he's his, co- his Clerks is hugely influential now. Yeah, like now that I think about it, um, it, it started to grade on me with Jane Silent Bob. I, I re- recently rewatched that, and I'm like, I really found this movie to be funny when it did first you? came out. Yeah. I know I never liked Jane Silent Bob, but it it gets really. I mean, I like the the stuff at Miramax. I think that's funny, but you know, that um, sort of Hollywood satire stuff kind of works on me and for, for the most part. But you know, like no, you, just some of the, I don't know, just some of his, you know, potty humor jokes gets old after a while. And the 
Also, why do you cast a movie that like that requires two people like that is a common duo? They ever cast two people with any chemistry? Oh yeah, like. Like that's like main reason I think like Pineapple Express is so funny is because they have such great chemistry and they work so well together. And this is like just the exact opposite where it's like number one, how the hell are Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman who like are fifteen years apart? Like why are they like best friends? <laughs> and number two, it's always like, oh, you're my best friend, but I hate everything about you. Like you ne- like. Well, that's what I thought about Sideways, though. Oh yeah, yeah. I I didn't necessarily buy into their friendship yeah but i like the characters still like i I like going on that road trip with those characters i saw what they saw in each other and they they have like a different kind of i don't think they're like best friends i don't think they see each other that much you know you're probably right i mean they were just college roommates or whatever right like but like uh it implies that like that they're just like best friends and then they love each other and they hang out all the time and Interesting. I don't understand that, and and the, yeah, they do a whole bunch of character stuff. It's horrible, and they do a bunch of stuff with crapping, and it's horrible. <laughs> and I get, I mean, you get to see big <laughs> fake prosthetic boobs on Leslie Mann. Hmm. Uh, that, that are like, uh, but again, that's just for like breastfeeding. Again, feeding, she steals the movie uh, for breastfeeding jokes. Well, she steals the movie because she's funny, right? And she's the only person whose character is like actually funny. In a way that makes sense to human beings, right? Um, yeah, and you're right about the narcissism, where it's just like it goes out of control. Like that's a, like like Albert Brooks movies. All of his main characters are very narcissistic, um, but he, you know, he they're human. They're not. They're humans. They're not just like aliens who don't understand that you can't just walk up to a random girl and be like, Hey, want a blowjob? Or just like, no, they're just more like caricatures then. Then you can't really relate to them on any sort of human level. The question is, is it going to make you laugh? Some people like that, you know, over the top exaggerated vulgarity kind of humor. That's what turned me off from hot tub time machine. I walked into that movie. It's it's when it's uninspired that it's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just so uninspired. And, yeah, it's just horrible. Hated, hated. So it's no up. vice versa. No like father, like son. It's not even Freaky Friday remake. Oh. Yeah, no. Because yeah. Freaky Friday remake, J- Jamie Lee Curtis gets to act all like childish, and I love her. Yeah, I know. I love her too. And that was fun to watch. Uh, um, The other movie I saw, I saw at the Music Box. Music Box is having a, um, a musical kind of a film festival and this one would not apply to the shit tech no 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 no, no not at all i saw i saw on the big so i got to see on the big screen finally um stop making sense uh, the talking heads concert film that jonathan demi directed and it's definitely my favorite concert film ever um but this screening it's sort of transformed into my one of my favorite movies ever uh because something really really magical happened um the sort of the at least the musical number that always stands out in my mind i'm pretty sure it's one of the more famous ones is uh actually ironically the song life during wartime um where the entire band is running in place for like the entirety of the and it's like the first really rocking really uh you know jamming kind of song in in the concert and you know everyone's running in place and there's a part where david byrne just gets up and just starts running around the entire stage and it's like the energy <laughs> expelled in that performance is incredible, and during that musical number, pretty much like not everyone, 
it's, I'd say it's like about a 400 seat theater. I'd say about like 90 people got up out of their seats and ran to the front of the theater like it was a stage at a concert and they were all dancing and moving and stuff. Um, and that it's, was, it was amazing. It was amazing. And so at this point it began to feel less like watching a movie than being at a concert. Cause yeah. you could see the shadows of the people in front of like at, in front of the very bottom of the screen. And there were parts where the way it w- the movie was shot, it actually lined up perfectly where hmm. David Byrne was the exact right size he would be in proportion to the people um, right at the front of the stage. Um, that's that's brilliant. And were, no, and I, I mean, the whole movie, everyone was singing along, and it was like a concert because everyone was applauding after every song, and everyone was, wow. you know, cheering and stuff. And This happened at a movie and then, theater. And <laughs> clapping, you know, and clapping to songs like you would do at a concert or whatever. Um, and... Uh, but the best part wasn't when David Byrne was like the exact right size proportion of them. The best part when it was like just his face, um, and it looked like it literally it looked like they were worshiping this god, which of course they were, you know, like and Big Brother. Or where something. it became this other thing where it was like a fucking like religious experience, especially uh, you know during uh, Once in a Lifetime where he you know he's doing all of his moves and that whole song oh, yeah. is basically like a preacher, yeah. Uh, you know, all the lyrics of that song are basically delivered like a preacher. And in, in the movie, you know, he's doing wild hand gestures and stuff like that, like a preacher. And you saw people, like, emulating, like, his dances and stuff. Mm. And it was, oh, my God, it was magical. It, it was, almost makes you wonder if the, the music box should hold screenings like this and show, like, a Sex Pistols concert or something. <laughs> Probably not if they want their seats to remain intact. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> But, like, just show concert movies, even if it's, like, I don't know, well, I, Neil but, Young or something. Yeah, but and, most concert movies are not going to get this response. I don't know any concert movie that would get this response from people mm-hmm. that has that kind of energy. I think Stop Making Sense is well, the Well, what was one. the Rolling Stones one? Gimme Shelter? Well, that, that what would... What was the Rolling Stones one from... Yeah, Gimme Shelter. I mean, that one just makes people angry. Like, you, you, you actually feel like there's a bar fight brewing in yeah. that when you watch that right. movie. Um, yeah, but that... No, that wouldn't. Uh, that would be different because it would be like because um, there's the documentary footage. Like I don't know any other movie that could happen for. If you really want to make it an experience, just have Hell's Angels come into the theater. Yeah, I mean, yeah, start stabbing people. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, and this it was hands down the greatest uh, theater experience of my life. And if you ever, I mean, I can't obviously I can't promise that this the same thing will happen to you. Uh, if you see it in theater, but if you ever get a chance to see it on the big screen, do so because it's such a beautiful movie. And Demi is so good. Like the key, he doesn't cut cut it like a music video, like every other like concert film. Demi Moore, uh, Jonathan Demi. Oh, okay, got it. <laughs> he doesn't. It doesn't like always cut with the beat. It's not like <laughs> when the guitar solo comes, it goes right to a close up of the guitar guy and. Um, and then on the big drum roll, it, it goes right to a close-up of the guy hitting – like it's not shot like a normal concert film. The editing is yes. a lot more sort of atonal and offbeat. And mm-hmm. Same with his take on Neil Young's Heart of Gold, oh, which is, is really, really I mean, I don't like, movie. I mean I don't like Neil Young's music, so I doubt I really enjoy that. Because, I mean, Talking Heads are one of my favorite bands ever, but I don't like Neil Young. So, I mean – I I think Last Waltz is a beautiful movie. Oh yeah, but I don't like the music in it, so yeah. I don't really watch it that often. 
Well, we should just transition beautifully into my next movie. Oh yeah, what's your what? What did you watch? Literally two hours after your experience, I walked into the exact same theater to see the Swell Season documentary. And just to preface this, I was beyond ecstatic for this because Once is you know in my top twenty favorite movies of all time. Um, so it almost it can almost. I ask, ha- can I ask you a real quick question? Okay. Real quick, what does the title once mean? Stuff happens once in your lifetime. I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't. I, you know, it. The, I know. The I'm titles not, I'm not, aren't always I'm not, definitive. I'm not, I love. I love once. I'm just yeah. saying that's one of those movies I've never been able to figure out exactly what they mean by the title. Hmm. Kurt, once you know, a connection. Isn't it one of the songs? Isn't yeah, it one of the songs in the film. Well, yeah. yeah, but like you know, I mean, that's there's a lot of songs they could have named the movie off of. Yeah. I don't know, maybe he's been trying to make it, you know, and now he's got his chance and it's, you know, once in a lifetime chance for him. Maybe it's simple and cynical that they realize that no other film was called that and it's a simple title and I have a feeling titles get picked a lot on that criteria. Yeah. 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 All right. Know, there's there's no pretense about it just like the movie itself and Fair enough. You know, I, I it's not something I would criticize. No, I, I didn't. I'm not yeah. criticizing it either. It's just something I never understood. Yeah, I don't know. It's okay. I I'll, I forgive it. Anyway, how is the documentary? Well, once it has a very personal, you know, uh, sort of feeling for me when I watch it, <clears throat> and you know, because I was a musician and I still am, but um, it tapped into like a like if there was a zeitgeist for me. It, it just seemed like. All the things, you know, like playing music and uh, DIY kind of settings and stuff like that. And there's an actual moment where they're actually playing at a house party slash dinner. And there were just things about it. The process of recording, collaborating with somebody that you're kind of attracted to, you know, and they form a relationship. So this movie, this documentary that plays like a sequel to Once, this is the reality part. Uh This is where you get to watch... These two people struggle with success, expectations of what do they do now to, you know, top winning an Oscar. Um, it's shot in black and white. It's, it's, it's a lot, reminded me a lot of, you know, your, your, uh, like the Wilco documentary in terms of how gritty and raw it is. And there's a lot of shaky cam. The way the, the shots are framed are not perfect in any way. Um, it's, you know, it's not necessarily, you're going to, you're not going to watch it to be amazed by cinematography or something like that. It's a really honest and genuine portrayal of people who are very honest and genuine. And, you know, you kind of expect it because I, you know, after a concert's over and I've seen this band a few times in concert, I always wonder what's going on backstage afterwards, what's on their mind. And they're open enough to discuss that. And you, you never really have moments of you're seeing the band as, like, uh, you know, being assholes or whatever. They're always, you know, catering to the fans and loving the fact that they have this chance, this opportunity to express themselves. But then there are some interesting scenes in particular that highlight why Glenn became a musician and... That's kind of the heart of the film is the scenes with his parents. And when you mm-hmm. see those scenes, they're all they're, first of all, they're hysterical. Like the, his mom is 
you know, wants to show off the Oscar to everybody on the block all the time. Um, but there's... Did, did she keep it? Well, you know, he's, he, he comes by to visit all the time. and Does he does he always bring an Oscar with him? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't get into that. <laughs> I think he keeps it at their house because li- he lives in Dublin. His parents live in Dublin. I bet he Dublin, likes, you know, so. I bet if I had an Oscar, I would do that. And I would just always keep it on me. So I'd always be stopped at the metal detector. And I'd just, oh, I'm sorry. That's my Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, but it's got like this, I don't know. The, the the painful honesty of watching you know these musicians interact with their parents and then each other because they were in a relationship you know the the, the two people in once were not only in a band that toured but they were together despite like a significant age difference and that plays into the movie as well like she's growing up and discovering that most of this is not what she wants from life and he's so comfortable with this lifestyle because he's been doing it for so long. He, he's been in a band before this, and he's kind of at ease with touring, and she's not really. Um, so you watch their relationship disintegrate thr- throughout the film, and there are some really de- devastating moments that <laughs> wouldn't be out of place in something like Blue Valentine because you're, you're, you're watching them fall apart, and you know the cameras are rolling. They're having these... In, there's a long take of them discussing, you know, not just their relationship, but their response to being on the road, to having the success. What do we do now? Where do we go from here? But it's it's a lot deeper than that. The, so this isn't a concert movie? No. Okay. There's very little, like, there's maybe one or two songs that maybe play out in full, but it's mostly just like a behind-the-scenes expose. Not, not unlike Truth or Dare, the Madonna thing. I never um, saw that. But it's more, I don't know, like, literally, they get naked together yeah. on screen. I mean, you see them both together running. It's a beautiful contrast, because you're seeing them running together naked into the ocean, and then towards the end of the film, they do it, but separately. And oh, yeah. there's a lot of moments like that where you can sense their closeness at the beginning, but then towards the end, you could see her drifting away and not enjoying this um, routine of touring and being in a band. Um, so it's really, really profoundly beautiful, but I, I know it helps to be a fan of this music and the band, but for the most part, I really do feel if you liked once you will love this movie because it plays very similarly. It's almost like how before sunset, um, or before sunrise, I always forget which one is first, but, um, you know, before sunrise sort of plays like the idealistic version and before sunset plays more like the more realistic, we're all grown up and we're sort of jaded and cynical about love. This is the more jaded and cynical about love portrayal of what's it not only like to be together, but to share music together. So it, it really, well, is it jaded or simp- Is it jaded or cynical or is it just that life is more complicated yeah. when you're older? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's a lot true. I, it's for, for me when I was, when I, when I saw before sunset, that's sort of like, read to me what those two characters are sort of realizing that yeah life has only not only become pretty complicated but the the woman in that in, in you know Julie Delpy's character says that she feels cynical and doesn't even believe that love can conquer all now and like that sort of idealism is crushed over time um and in the movie once it sort of does celebrate the idealism of creating music and being in a relationship together and this one sort of 
plays it very real, very straightforward. Um, and there's, you know, there's just some really amazing stuff in this that uh, really, really moved me quite a bit. Um, but like I said, I'm a huge fan of this band, so if this ends up on my top ten at the end of the year, take that with a with a grain of salt. <laughs> well, that sounds like there's enough music to put put off someone who doesn't like the right. band. No, there isn't. I think you could watch this, and it's you know a lot better than something like a behind the music. But uh, I think you can find elements of it um, to relate to, even if you you're not a musician or a fan of the band. So that the Swell Season documentary hasn't gotten distribution yet. I don't know why. Uh, once got an Oscar, and you know they're somewhat popular, I would think. But um, anyway, hopefully it gets released later in the year for everybody to check out. And if it does, I'll let everyone know. Um, and then another thing I watched, probably because after I watched Code Forty Six, I felt like I wanted to watch something else. After that, I felt like because that it reminded me of a lot of movies that I love. And I felt like watching Lost in Translation because I haven't watched it in a few years. And um, I don't know. I, I feel like Sofia Coppola sort of caters to my sensibilities. Like, she, I don't know how she is at all in real life, but her movies feel like they're. Um, it's, it's a vision of somebody who's kind of introverted and enjoys people watching and observing and not really in, interacting and engaging in a way, but sort of letting scenes play out and breathe on their own. Um, it's something that Wong Kar Wai does really well that I, I really respond to. Um, just that sort of like fractured, you know, narrative, but not necessarily like in the way of a Tarantino, but just, you know, scenes cut a lot quicker or they, they, they play out much longer than you'd expect. It sort of plays with your expectations, but it's Lost in Translation is just a great film about being lonely and connecting with random people over a short period of time. And, you know, whether you can, you know, everybody, I think, has felt that sort of, you know, alienation at some point and being in a strange land or going on vacation and not knowing how to communicate with some people around you or whatever. But um, I don't know. And obviously it's still my favorite Bill Murray performance, but uh, I don't think Scarlett Johansson has ever been better than she was in this. And um, I don't know, the, the score, everything about this movie, the more I watch it, every few years the more i love it so yep sofia coppola got it. good one i haven't seen it since i first saw it when i was too young i was probably like 17 or something so i probably should see it again yeah i don't have many memory all i remember is it's the is the the strip club scene with uh peaches, peaches. <laughs> <playing>. <laughs> that's, a little that's, awkward that's pretty much all i remember but about i like i like so many things about how she transitions from something like that to running in the streets of you know tokyo and there's no music playing in the background but then we cut to like a crazy karaoke montage um just just sort of the randomness the karaoke of, scene really plays yeah yeah it really does. It's everything. Every I don't know everything about her style. I really like. Although I've only seen Virgin Suicide Suicides once, and I didn't care for it at the time. But I'm I really want to revisit that one too. Just we'll probably cover her next year, honestly. Oh, we will. Yeah, especially if she comes out with something at some point again. Um, Where do you guys stand on Marie Antoinette? I love it. I love it too. Yeah. Oh wow! It's nice to find people that love that movie <laughs> no, because that's, I that's... usually end up getting weird looks when I say how much I enjoy that particular movie. No, I really, really like that 
movie. I like what she what she did with it. I like it's everything I normally don't like about kind of period dramas is mm-hmm. everything I love about Marie Antoinette. Yeah, she subverts your expectations yeah. a lot in that movie and where it's song choices. It's and... everything feels alive instead of stagey and stuffy like so many period dramas end up feeling. Or how you feel about somewhere. Well, no, I don't think that feels stagey and stuffy. I think that feels dull and dull and dull. But yeah. <laughs> I don't think Kurt's aware of that infamous it's argument. It's a movie about dullness. It's a movie about dullness. Okay, but you know, I could I could make a movie about paint drying. It doesn't make it good just because it's accurate. <laughs> you know? No, a lot of people feel that way, and that's an infamous argument on this podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> we don't have to reiterate that. We'll reiterate it on the Sophia Couple episode. We sure will. Maybe Kurt, it'll feel different. Um, why don't you take take the lead here, Kurt, and talk about something you've seen recently? Well, I'd I'd love to come at this uh, with a couple really highbrow, arty films, but in light of a particular series that's been going on in Toronto, um, and you guys talking about odd theatrical screenings, there is a series that plays at a small rep cinema uh, called Defending the Indefensible, which uh, takes a variety of film critics and writers, reviewers from around the city, and they pick movies that were more or less commercial failures, more or less critical failures, but nonetheless have a little bit of a devoted following. So they're almost like embryonic cult movies. Yeah. And they have one come up and defend it, and another writer come up and attack it God, that for about great. you know five minutes debate. Then the uh, we watch the movie with the audience, and then at the end, the two people come up and do a Q and A, uh, and it plays really really well. So they've normally been doing one of these about every month, but for some reason last Thursday they did a double bill hmm. of Kurt Vimmer's Equilibrium <laughs> and. I- Ends Ghostbusters 2. And I don't like either of these movies, but I I kind of acknowledge and I kind of see why Equilibrium is a, a bit of a has a bit of a cult following. Um, and I hadn't seen Ghostbusters 2 since the theatrical release in 1989. So uh, that to me was more curiosity because I could barely even remember the movie except for Peter McNichol's weird performance <laughs> in A River of Slime. That yeah. was pretty much the only two memories I had uh, of that movie. So it was rather an interesting experience. But I'll start off with Equilibrium. Um, such a difficult movie to <laughs> wrap your mind around because on one hand, it's just inanely stupid. Yes. It, 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 it's true so hard to throw out all of the, uh, you know, sort of iconic uh, dystopian world. Like, there's, like, so much Brave New World, so much 1984, so much Fahrenheit 451 in this movie, and it's so obvious and so artless. And then they they have the the very famous uh, Yates quote, which I really think all movies should put a moratorium on now. If I (laughs) I hear that that quote in a movie... it's uh, um, tread softly for you tread on my dreams. Um, uh, I mean, Clint Eastwood used it, or Paul Haggis used it in, in Million Dollar Baby, which I find oh, it equally yeah. offensively used there. That's I mean, right. it's a wonderful passage. It's a it's a wonderful piece of poetry. I'm not knocking on the poet. I'm just knocking on the fact that it just seems so 
obvious and I don't know. It just feels like so many people have used it. It's like someone using Born to be Wild on the soundtrack. It's just so <laughs> like overdone that you're, you're, you're being more lazy than yeah. profound. Mm-hmm. I, I feel, I feel uh, similarly about um, characters talking when they say, you see those stars? Those stars have probably already burned out, and we're you know we haven't even seen it yet. Like <laughs> those that that I've heard that conversation play in a million movies and TV shows. Yeah, I feel like I've seen that in the trailer that, for something else. <laughs> that same speech. And Kurt Vimmer, I mean, he's like that all over the place. The first half of Equilibrium is just all of this exposition and sort of setting up something that I think. Anyone who likes that genre, the hard sci-fi version of that genre, and I'm sure we'll talk about this when Code 46 comes oh, up, yes. uh, you know, will find that type of bluntness to be offensive. So yeah. on that hand, I, I really hate Equilibrium. On the other hand, it is one of the great, goofy comic book movies that isn't literally a comic book. I mean, it's so over-the-top visually, like all the cars are painted all black or all white and all the weird Christian imagery in the city and, and, and how so on one hand when he gets literary it's it, it's just annoying but when it gets to be visually comic book it, it's kind of fun in a goofy campy kind of way so watching this movie with an audience when Christian Bale picks up a puppy and tries to figure out how to defend a puppy you know, against <laughs> evil dystopian world that that don't know what to do with puppies. Yeah. It's kind of like you you can't not laugh at that yeah, scene. Yeah. It's fun. It's really hilarious. And the gun cata stuff. Oh, I mean, it, it, it's exactly the spirit of the movie. It's both visually interesting and totally fucking retarded. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense on one hand, but on the other hand, it looks good on screen. And if you think about when you watch movies, there's tons of things that people would never do but look good on screen and and so equilibrium is in this weird no man's land so i mean in the end i i i really think the movie is a piece of crap but it is not without many pleasures and one of the local bloggers uh, sasha james who was in charge of defending the movie and spent half of her defense saying how much she knew the movie was bad which is kind of a weird way to defend the movie yeah. but she did point out something that I'd never noticed before I don't know if either one of you have seen Equilibrium but it opens with this long expositional monologue that kind of says you know there was wars and there was hate and all this emotion is what wrecked the world And but it's done with whatever's being narrated flashes on the screen like, uh, like PowerPoint yeah. in oh. Arial font like it, it's like a really bad <laughs> PowerPoint presentation. And that, to me, made the movie... It endeared the movie, just her bringing that point up. Because now it just makes the movie look extra dorky. Like someone couldn't be bothered to transcend PowerPoint with a film. You know what movie... Because, you know, PowerPoint's pretty much the most static, boring thing ever. You know know what movie sort of I feel similarly about? Uh, Southland Tales. Which also begins with the most kind of absurd exposition. But Southland Tales uh, is it's funny. funny. Yeah, they approached me to an entry in that series defending the indefensible, and the the film I picked to defend was Southland Tales. <laughs> but they Disney has all of the prints locked up. They won't they won't issue a print, so oh. they haven't been. Are they afraid uh, they, it's they gonna... didn't include it in the series? But I like Southland Tales. Not not to go off on a huge tangent, but I like Southland Tales because it feels like you're watching an orchestrated channel hop. For, yeah. for two hours. Yeah. You, I like that. I like that. Going approach. through 
snapshot of cultural inanity. Like, so you'll go from from pornography to again uh, quoting um, who is it? It is quoting Philip K. Dick, and yeah. then you'll go to this like two SUVs having sex, and then it'll be this like post-apocalyptic barbecue, and then it'll be this weird energy source. I mean, in a way. It's everything that I kind of love and hate about modern culture. It's it's like a whole river of stuff. And I think he actually articulates that and captures that on film. Now, exactly the same way you bitched about somewhere in that just because it's accurate, it doesn't yeah. make it entertaining. I can understand that criticism of the film. But as a live channel hop, as the movie that uh, you know Mr. Brainwash was supposed to make in Exit Through the Gift Shop, that's Southland Tales. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good no, point. No, excellent, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, that was actually going to be my next question, so I guess you already answered it. Jim, if you had to pick one movie uh, for a series like that, Defending the Indefensible, what would wow. you choose? That's a good... Huh. I know what mine <sighs> would be. Mine would be Superman 3. Well, I, yeah, I adore it... Superman 3. I don't know if a lot of people actively dislike that movie. I've, I think all I hear is horrible things about Superman three. I've, I've only heard maybe there's things. a lot of us that like it though. Yeah. There, there, there's oh. definitely a contingent. I mean, if you really wanted to get controversial, you'll defend Superman four, which is truly no, indefensible because it's but... like the Golan Globus production. But Superman three is is probably the most fun they've ever had with the Superman formula, which makes it a more interesting film than. You know, even the 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 some, the more wrote, which I like the Brian Singer one, where where it it taps into all this Christ imagery and 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 plays a few what ifs, but it still plays it very safe. I mean, it's God damn it, it's like a, a land scheme, like the first movie yeah. and everything. <laughs> so it plays it rather safe. Where Superman three is like there are no rules in Superman three. It it, it, it kind of just. It begins with, around yeah, with it begins with like a the, Benny Hill like escalation yeah. gag where everything's like going haywire and a car's filling up with water. Like it feels, yeah, it feels like a it, it feels like a comedy uh, more than anything else, and that's what I like about it. Um, you know, I'd say my three favorite superhero God movies are uh, if Marvel would play with the formula like they played with Superman and Superman 3 because Marvel is so locked into their thing that yeah. the movies are just tedious at this point. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that's um so yeah, I'd, Superman 3 would be mine, Jim. You know, let me let me think about it. Okay, Let, yep. get back to me. Um how is that's and a good then question. Kurt, how is Ghostbusters 2? Um well, actually before I answer that question, um the other movie that I picked besides Southland Tales was I think not chosen because it's all because it's also Kurt Vimmer. And I think actually equal to, to finish off on equilibrium, um the interesting thing about uh Kurt Vimmer's next directed movie, because he's written tons of movies, um, but his next directed movie was Ultraviolet, which is like Equilibrium Ooh. without any pretense. It's just complete inanity from start to beginning and it is such a joy to watch visually um i don't know if either of you seen ultraviolet i I have not no i haven't either it's like it's even got uh, some of the same cast members and and whatnot like william fickner is in both equilibrium he's the head of the resistance and he's the basically mila jovovich's q in ultraviolet and a lot of the fight sequences like it's an extension of gunkata there's a lot of weird helmet shattering in equilibrium like uh, christian bale will often be hitting people with the butt of his guns and they've got these glass helmets Mm -hmm. and in ultraviolet it's like 
this is the type of inanity of which makes ultraviolet pleasant is that all the super soldiers in ultraviolet are in glass armor. Like the, <laughs> it makes no sense to put anyone in glass armor other than when you have a woman with a staff or a sword chopping them to bits, you get to capture in slow motion all this interesting ways that glass shatters. Yeah. And it looks awesome visually. <laughs> and it, th- th- that's what I like about the when he's not preaching George Orwell or Ray Bradbury at me, I think equilibrium works. And ultraviolet is is equilibrium without any of the without any of the heavy handed literary stuff. And it's just fun and it opens up with comic book panels and they've washed everyone's faces so that they look like um like almost like video game mats. Like it's just a weird there's a lot of visual chances and everyone hates this movie. Like they just think it's yeah. worse than a Nuve Bolt film. And yet <laughs> I don't know. It's it reminds me of something like Desperado. You you know, you watch um what was the Robert Rodriguez's first movie? El Mariachi. Yeah. And then you watch Desperado and it's like a huge parody of El Mariachi. Everything's just bigger and sillier and 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 just just having fun with the medium and that's what ultraviolet is to me. And it yeah, it's uh, it's another defending the indefensible movie, but there doesn't seem to be any cult around this movie. It just no. seems to be me. That that's likes why. This I've, movie. That's why I've always you have to avoided find it. Anyone on the planet that likes this movie? Well, I'm going to check Pardon it out me? now, so you might have another one because it sounds appealing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I reviewed it on Twitch in 2005, when it came out new, I got just a river of, and it's funny because usually people get angry when you trash a movie that they like you know you get the fanboys they come out in force right it's right. very rare when you love a movie that people don't like that they will trash you for it like really trash you for it i, I just don't know why um i think people that loved equilibrium and 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 for some reason didn't find themselves being punched in the face by bad exposition in equilibrium and then they thought it was like deep and intellectual maybe they don't read this kind of st- uh, books or anything and and then when you look at ultraviolet and there's nothing in the movie it's just visual excess um and they they felt like oh i wanted another sort of you know primer or whatever of 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 dystopia or or, yeah. or whatever uh stuff and they didn't get it and it just was like you know this is dumb you know like it was just a sort of that reaction but like not i don't not know i think it's more delivering was dumb Exactly. If you if you approached Equilibrium as you know, it's it's both an action movie and deeply philosophical. And then Ultraviolet was like, "What the hell did I just watch?" But <laughs> if you looked at Equilibrium as a flawed experiment in the first place, and they just jettisoned everything that didn't make Equilibrium or dragged Equilibrium down, and and went for the pure visual excess and 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 inanity on screen, but that looks great, then uh, Ultraviolet is that movie so yeah if you get a chance i'd be curious if it falls into your oh yeah that's that's an interesting movie or if it's absolutely a craptacular entry for you so uh very curious to see how you'd treat that um well i would i would certainly like to i would i would certainly like to hear you and uh you defending mr nobody and having uh you versus jay probably (laughs) With Mister Nobody, I, I'm I'm more in w- with uh, siding with Jay on that one. That that did not connect with me in any way, and like there, I don't know, there are moments to me that that movie felt like a PowerPoint presentation with you know Jared Leto's character trying to explain what was going on or trying to give it like a Cliff's Notes version of physics or something. I, there were things about that movie that really irked me, and most of that was sort of 
I could see why some boat could respond to that movie as strongly as you did, but um, it's <laughs> that's one of the few disagreements you and I have had so far. <laughs> well, Jay and I have had the debate on <laughs> yeah. Mr. Nobody, but we've done it live with no microphones. Right. So I, I want to hear it live. Just had it just as a conversation. Um, what I think people that slam Mr. Nobody get, and this is a big spoiler if, if you haven't seen Mr. Nobody, but what to me is the moment that makes that movie transcend beyond the, you know, like I, I think Jay describes it as a movie uh, about a guy in love with being able to steal from other movies and he's just like, look what I stole and look at how well I did it and blah, blah, blah. That's his argument. My argument is that at the end of Mr. Nobody, it what it does with time and what it does with actual physics it's not just like a guy being pretentious the whole movie builds up to the point where time reverses and i just think that scene Hmm. works so well like as the possibility and the way matter is thrown together and the way anything builds up to something but at the same point it could just as arbitrarily be something else so to have right at the moment of this guy's death um, it being at the point where the uh, universe stop expands um, and starts contracting, because uh, you know we're we're all the center of our own universe. Um, I just think it's a wonderful way to to capture that, and I don't believe I've seen any other film that's done that. So in all the argument against Mister Nobody, that it's just derivative of everything else, idea wise, visually, and whatever, it has one hell of a climax that has never been done, as far as I know, in any other film. I felt I. I- as that movie played out, I sort of tuned out and felt more disconnected from the experience. Um, but anyway, let's I've move never, on. I've never even really heard of it very much. No, you don't need to see it. It's okay. <laughs> it was a Canadian-Brazilian-German co-production or something, and it was uh, they do great it's a big-budget movie. It's very glossy. Jared Leto. That's all you need to know. But it, it just... <laughs> yeah, it just never... It just never, never panned out, I guess. Um... Ghostbusters 2, uh, it's just weird to watch Ghostbusters 2 because, A, in the first half of the movie, Bill Murray is really funny. I mean, there's, it's, it's impossible to get around the fact that, that, that Bill Murray's funny in this movie. But the second half of Ghostbusters 2 is so flat-out awful that it, I, I can understand why people hate it. I... I I kind of get the little – there's grace notes in like Peter McNichol's performance. There's the odd scene where where Bill Murray actually has a conversation with a baby because he's not the father of the baby. There's <laughs> these weird little scenes that actually work in the movie, but they don't really fit with what a Ghostbusters movie or what I think a Ghostbusters movie is. Yeah. And so I understand why some people like this movie, but it is just damn near impossible to get around the fact that – the movie was written to follow every single story beat and every plot point of the first one. And it's done with none of the, you know, things coming together. Like the first one shouldn't work. Just if you think about it, if you think about the first one outside of, you know, the watching the movie, like I, I know that the screenplay was being written in real time and they didn't even come up with the cross the streams thing till way near the end of the, of the process, which is, wacky to me because that's what ties the whole movie together but um 
the second one just feels like let's just do it all we'll just change the symbols we'll replace things and replacing the marshmallow man with the statue of liberty and the way they set that up and 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 just the the sense of connection it's just it's just it's just awful it's it's a tedious slog um and it's too bad because they're they're fairly spry in the first half of the movie i mean sure a lot of it's sort of you know where are the now kind of stuff and and whatever but that's such a singularly yeah. horrible choice to oh they saved the entire city and now we'll have the city hate them again like no we already like who why would you do yeah, that it's it's it, it, it's the, the it's because the, they felt that they had to go through all the story beats again so yeah. somehow before the movie starts they had to come up with hundreds of reasons of why everyone would be back to where they were at the beginning of the first one yeah, that's a sh- that's a real shame. I do think that that courtroom scene is one of my favorite courtroom scenes ever. Uh, yeah. I I just about die laughing. Rick Moran is going. Give me a break. We're both lawyers. Is probably like one of the funniest parts of any movie. <laughs> but the judge is awful. Like the no, he's judge really is bad. Truly awful in that. He's scene. he's way overacting. Is no, it's not the guy from Police Academy. What is he from? Uh. Who is the judge in? I can't remember. Yeah. I don't know that actor. I, I even I even made it a point to watch during the credits to see because he, he feels like a character actor you recognize, but I didn't reckon like I I don't quite recognize. I mean, he looks kind of like a composite of a bunch of character actors. And when his name came up, I I never it never registered with me. But yeah, it's funny that that this is the story of Ghostbusters too. They'll have they'll be onto something, but there'll be one element in each scene that kind of undermines that scene. Um, and there's some weird cameos in that movie. Um, Philip Baker Hall. Oh no! Is in the movie for like five seconds. He's the police commissioner. So when they do the montage, which would be the equivalent <laughs> of the, um, you know, when all the ghosts get out of the containment field and they have a huge montage of everyone being haunted, uh, he's like the police commissioner in that one scene. He's in. He's on screen for five seconds. Um, Cheech has a cameo he he works at like the docks or something and he says that the titanic has come back in isn't it cheech and again it's just and one richard little isn't richard pryor in there too gag. it's cheech and richard pryor Pardon me i thought it was cheech and richard pryor i don't think so oh, is no it, no is, it's uh it it's it, it it's cheech and i don't know some sort of um he looks like mike star but he's not mike star he's kind of like a hmm. kind of pasty face skin eczema white guy not richard pryor okay. <laughs> um yeah i don't remember yeah, too but much they got about... everyone else back hmm. yeah i don't remember too much about it... ghostbusters too to be honest <laughs> like i just remember and, and, peter and, and, mcnichol that's the criticism of the film yeah is that the fact that you don't remember it's like i can have entire conversations with my wife in Ghostbusters quotes, yeah, at, with nuance for and sure. It's like the it's like the guys in South Park having an entire conversation with the word dude, or the guys in the Wire having an entire investigation scene with the word fuck. I can do entire, you know, whatever emotional highs and lows just with Ghostbusters quotes, and and yet the second one doesn't register at all. It's the chief criticism of that movie is just how damn forgettable it is. Yeah, that's really sad coming from those guys because it's the same writers, the same director. I mean, every I think the entire yeah. creative team is the exact same. So what went wrong? I mean, the whole movie just sort of reeked well, of desperation. I think, and well, I don't know. and I think 
that's not entirely false because mm-hmm. the um, the the studio did not let them make a sequel for a long period of time. And I guess as the story goes, or at least how Matt Brown from Mamo, who was attacking the movie, told the story before the, before the screening, is that they, they refused to make a sequel for a long time. And I don't think it was like a Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, Ivan Reitman thing. It was just the studio refused to make a sequel. And then they changed you know, whatever executive management at the studio. And then the moment that changed, they said, okay, I want a Ghostbuster sequel within the year. So give me something. Yeah. And it feels rushed. Yeah, the whole project. Yeah. And uninspired. And I think, I think Dan Aykroyd's original idea was that it would be like a corporation and then like, there would be like Ghostbusters franchises and all across the country and stuff like that. Like that plays like, a, I mean, it was probably too big of a budget for the thing they wanted to do. Um, but that strikes me well, being a more interesting idea. And that plays the sequel as an ambitious extension of the first one rather than a flat-out retread, which right. admittedly a lot of films in the 80s that were sequels were more of a retread rather than a serialized, you know, we're going to continue the story kind of thing. I'm, and people always loved the Star Wars trilogy and the Godfather trilogy because they felt far more like extensions of the story with each chapter rather than just a constant well we're just going to make this one bigger yeah i wonder if this sort of marked the decline for like the the writing team I, well I, I think it was more dan Aykroyd who sort of jumped the shark so to speak <laughs> with nothing but trouble and all that other stuff that he did i don't know I, well, and yeah it that ms who had- one of the key writers on this thing as well. He just got really fat, and that, while that doesn't affect his <laughs> writing style, it just blows my mind when I watch like Orange County because he hadn't been in front of the camera for so long, and he has a little cameo in Orange County, and and, and it was just you're, you're looking at something and you're saying there's something not right with that. Oh my God, that's Harold Ramis, and he's really heavy. Yeah. Well, I mean that helped him. I mean he went in a completely opposite direction because he came out with Groundhog Day, you know. It's like Dan Aykroyd. I don't know. I don't know if he just, you know, <laughs> lost Aykroyd, his way. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd uh, wrote and directed Nothing But Trouble. Yeah. Oh, that movie's <laughs> fucking horrible. <laughs> even though, t- even yeah. with Tupac in it, even with the digital underground in it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't that sad? That's so sad. It's uh, all I remember from Ghostbusters Two is the scene where they're yelling at Slime. And that was supposed to be funny, and it wasn't. I love <laughs> and Peter Peter McNichol going, "I love you, Vigo," or whatever. No, I love Peter McNichols <laughs> um, before he becomes the, the crazy slave. By the way, I love oh, how yeah. Vigo Vigo comes to life and goes, "You are my." It's like you must do my bidding, and then Peter McNichols <laughs> immediately just snaps into, okay, "Oh yes, yes, master, of course." <laughs> um, but. Uh, I love the scene in the beginning when he's just walking around, like, criticizing all the people who are doing art. By the way, how did Dana go from being a cellist to art restoration? (laughs) Well, they actually have an explanation in the movie for that. So she's taking a break. She's basically on maternity leave uh, while she from the orchestra while, while she has this newborn baby who's like eight months or something at the time. And she's doing the uh, Museum of Modern Art or whatever it is, the, 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 the painting restoration because it's just a part-time little gig. Like they actually, it's Don't funny, you need out of like all a degree? the things that, that I'm surprised you even asked this question and I'm surprised anyone would even care, but of all the details, <laughs> that's the one thing that they actually really went out of their way to kind of provide an explanation for on I screen. I thought like to be, I thought to do art restoration, you needed like a degree in like, 
something like that. I didn't know that was like just sort of an entry level position where you could just. Well, that, and that, that's Ghostbusters two in a nutshell. No yeah. one seems to be doing their job well in Ghostbusters two, where you got the sense that even though they mock academia at the beginning um you know dana as a musician was very believable and and everyone else in the movie even janine as a secretary was believable whereas here she's some you know uh, mod post-punk you know fashion icon or something she's like um (laughs) the 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 lady from the incredibles whoever whoever she was modeled on uh, edith head um and there's a weird scene where she seduces Rick Moranis by putting a crystal ball up against her vagina. Uh, it, it really stands out. Like when you watch it, she's like talking to Rick Moranis and she's got this crystal ball in her hand and she just lowers it between her legs and then cut to a Rick Moranis reaction shot. It's that I, I give the movie kind of credit for doing such a weird image right in the middle. But other than that, there ain't much. Everything else is pretty stock. Yeah, poor Ivan Reitman. I mean, I, I actually I think the only other movie that he made was good after Ghostbusters 2 was uh, Dave. I, I like that movie, but mostly it's just because Kevin Klein is so charming. Um, but man, he's made some stinkers. Junior, Father's Day, Six Days, Seven Nights. Year One. Oh. No, I no think that was Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis actually Harold did, Ramis year, did one. year One. Yeah. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. okay. So what? My super ex girlfriend was the last yeah. Ivan Reitman film. Um, no strings attached, which you like, Jim? Yeah, which, which I surprisingly did not dislike at all. I was genuinely surprised by a number of romantic comedies this year, including Crazy Stupid Love, which just came out as well. That one really surprised me. Um, well, it's funny. He seems then Ivan Reitman seems to have gone the way of like uh, Rob Reiner, where he just went from <laughs> these kind of light, effervescent, but still his signature on it to just work for hire jobs, right? Because No Strings Attached just feels like a work for hire comedy. Yeah, it is. But I, <laughs> I almost wondered if he consulted with his son. It's <laughs> like, how can I make a good uh, romantic comedy now? Because, <laughs> you know, after, you know, uh, Jason Reitman did uh, Juno and Up in the Air, it's like, yeah, maybe uh, you might want to talk to your son there, Ivan, <laughs> about making a good movie again or trying to make well, a good Jason's movie. Well, Jason's actually in Ghostbusters 2 when yeah. oh, um, yeah. Dan you know Aykroyd you guys are full and, of crap. and uh, Ernie Hudson are going around to birthday parties. He's one of the kids at the birthday party that they want um, He-Man instead of <laughs> instead right. of the Ghostbusters to cater their party. My dad says you're full of crap. That's my that's one of my uh, favorite uh, comedy <laughs> comedy sons director uh, cam- comedy director's sons cameos. Uh, um, that's cute. There's that, and then there's a uh, Max Landis in uh, the Stupids. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this punk graffitiing. That's a really funny cameo. Yeah, that's funny. You know, I think the one movie that you that I could defend that I would like picture myself doing a you know a PowerPoint presentation about because just amongst my circle of friends, I don't. I love Lost Highway. And every single friend I, I know have, that movie has a big, big cult following. I'm, yeah, but I just feel like it's something that I, I'd, I'd like to defend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, I think you're like the only person in, among your friends who likes it. I hate that movie, but most people do. I think. <laughs> I, I mean, at least in my experience, amongst well, it was critics, in the new, it was. In, I mean, when I first saw it, it was on screen. It, it was playing at the music box as part of what the AV Club was doing with the new cult canon. Oh yeah. So I mean, it obviously has. 
a following. And oh, that's uh, fairly recent then. Yeah. 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 Uh, that new cult canon series has only been going on for about two years, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I saw I saw it, I believe, uh, last year. Um, yeah, because well, I saw it when it came out in '95 at uh, a cinema in Toronto, which was the last. I think it was the last screening at that, like the last movie they showed before they knocked the cinema down. And oh, wow. that's one hell of a movie to go out on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. It feels like a last movie. You it know, does. Like, like, uh, it feels like that should be a, a cinema killer. Yeah. <laughs> not, in, not because the movie's bad, but just the tone and the, the sort of the you know, oblique, esoteric yeah. nature of it. I'd say the only movie that would be better to end a cinema on would be Tulane Blacktop, because that actually ends with the film getting caught in the projector the and fan. burning. Yeah. Yeah. Or Inglorious Bastards, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although it has like five, ten minutes left after the. Yeah, just cut out that last down. reel of Inglorious Bastards. That'd be a great way to end the theater. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Well, the, the Lost Highway, even if, you, even if your friends hate The Lost Highway, there's no way any human being with their driver's license can possibly hate the Robert Loggia meltdown oh. in the middle of the Lost Highway <laughs> where he just goes in and rips into the guy that's tailgating. Yeah. Like, that just weird because it's totally out of tone with the rest of the movie, but that scene just rules in yeah, every way possible. I agree. Well, I think we're just about ready to move on, guys, yep. to our director of the episode, Michael Born in 1961 in Blackburn, Lancashire, which is in which is in England, which is in Europe, Michael Winterbottom worked in television for five years before making the leap to the silver screen with 1995's Butterfly Kiss. A prolific filmmaker, making 17 films in 15 years, he continued to make critically acclaimed films, with 24-Hour Party People achieving his, achieving his third Palme d'Or nomination after Welcome to Sarajevo and Wonderland. That it lost to Roman Polanski's The Pianist is no big deal. In fact, it fits the story of the anarchic rise and fall of Factory Records and its creator Tony Wilson, played by Steve Coogan. It's a whirlwind story about the music scene that changed the world and, in true punk fashion, nearly killed everyone involved. Manchester, birthplace to the railways, the computer, the bouncing bomb. In 1976, if you wanted to see the most exciting bands in the world, they were on a regional show coming out of Manchester. My show. I'm Tony Wilson. June the 4th, the Sex Pistols play Manchester for the very first time. There are only 42 people in the audience. Inspired, they will go out and perform wondrous deeds. For instance, behind me are Stiff Kittens, later to become Joy Division, and finally to become New Order. That's John the Postman, he's a postman. Factory Records, my label. Joy Division, New Order, Happy Mondays. We are an experiment in human nature. 
kind of music you got me bringing in? <laughs> New way. Um, real quick, indie. before uh, we we start talking about the movie, I did want to sort of get a feel um, about everyone's relationship with the music um, and the band sort of depicted um, before they... I mean, I saw this... I first saw this movie actually just yesterday, but I know you two probably saw it when it came out or at least close to it. Yeah. Um, so what what were your sort of... What was your relationship with you know, bands like New Order and Joy Division and the Happy Mondays and stuff before you saw the film? I've always liked them. I wouldn't say they'd make it into my iPod on constant rotation or anything. Um, New Order I've really liked more because they're melodic. Um, you know, there's hooks there. You know, it's more pop music than anything else. Um, I like the energy of some of the earlier uh, music that's portrayed in the movie. Um, you know, the punk rock or the new wave. I, I, I enjoy a lot of that style, um, but not to, to the extent of, you know, something like I am with the swell season or whatever. But uh, I, I enjoy the music, but I wouldn't say it's, you know, one of my favorite genres or anything. And Kurt? Well, my relationship is really weird because I didn't listen to a lot of music in the early 80s, which a lot of the genesis of this stuff would be. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I had a lot of friends that listened to a lot of music that introduced me to a lot of these bands, not necessarily when they were, like, new. I mean, like, Ian Curtis had already killed himself before I had heard of Joy Division. But, I mean, I I think I've always had an awareness of this music. And for whatever reason, in the early to mid 90s when um like the inspiral carpets and the stone roses and and the sort of second order bands right <laughs> um from this like literally obviously new order is literally the second order band but but that there was this wave of bands inspired by those bands that so you know even like a band like oasis like feels like they were like refining the the the, the sort of pioneering that went on with those bands and they were a little more music i guess like like um uh, jim said like more melodic melody friendly right. stuff and and but i i had a lot of like sort of goth kind of friends in that era that would listen to like uh susie and the banshees and the bauhaus and and joy division was definitely in that like sandbox so yeah i i guess musically i i can't say that i was a huge lover of of of, of those bands but i was highly aware the one thing that i never connected which is weird because i kind of like the happy mondays um, but i never connected this era of music to the rise of rave culture until i saw 24 hour party Mm -hmm. people because it felt like rave culture took a long time to get across the pond like britain was so far out ahead of that curve at least in my in my mind that's no that's Um, it's funny because it seemed like wow during yeah, during that uh, scene at at the club when he's like, "Oh, this birth of rave culture," I'm like, "Wait a second, what era are we in?" Because yeah. I didn't even think that existed. I didn't then. either. Not something uh, I learned through this movie. Yeah, I'm. I was used to yeah, because I'm. I'm. I was used to sort of. You know, I think you and I have had the conversation where I I've liked a few Smith songs, but never got crazy about them. I'd say the same thing holds true for Joy Division. I mean, well, I, yeah, the, I don't even think you need to love this music. Well, no, that's that either. was sort of the point I was making. I. I don't really – I love New Order. I like love, love, love New Order. Um, and Joy Division, whenever I'm hungover, is the greatest music <laughs> that anyone has ever made. Like it literally just feels like being hungover and it's 
And whenever I, I always like to try to listen to music that matches how I'm feeling. I know some people, they're like, oh, I can't listen to sad music when I'm sad. I try to listen to happy music. But I like, I always go the opposite. I always have to, when I'm happy or I'm excited or energized, I try to listen to, you know, punk. And then when I, yeah, that makes sense. So I, that's pretty much where my, uh, association with the music ended. So I was kind of surprised about how much I love this movie. Um, it's, uh, cause it is about the music, but at the same time, it's just such a, a great story of these outsiders who, even when they exploded, they never, yeah. like, I was, I was totally expecting it because Steve Coogan's, uh, Tony Wilson is such a narcissistic character. <laughs> I was totally expecting it to go sort of a traditional route where, um, everything became really, uh, homogenized and sort of. You know, I thought, oh, he's calling it Factory Records. It's going to, that's, like, I thought it was, obviously it was actually called Factory Records, but I thought uh, the sort of, the, the, pl- the place the movie would go is yeah, they would just start cranking out things that sounded like New Order or sounded like, um, and the fact that he sort of stayed on the outside the entire way, and that, of course that is why he failed and why he never made any money, Yeah, uh, it's, it made it's so much more of an interesting story. Uh, so I really did love this. And, of course, I think Michael Winterbottom loves uh, to like uh, someone, not in the same way, but like someone like Werner Herzog. He likes to incorporate uh, documentary sort of aspects into his fiction. Whether it's using actual footage or sort, yeah, of, this, em- or this, sort of emulating this, yeah, it. This movie would definitely be like the pinnacle of that, um, where, of course, there's that amazing scene where they're watching the sex pistols and it keeps yeah. cutting between uh, the actual, actual footage yeah and and it feels seamless it it doesn't even feel like fake really. and the, and like him commenting on this guy over here did this this guy over here did that that never bothers me it's like i guess when john cusack breaks the fourth wall in high fidelity that kind of bothers me but for some reason it it fits more in this movie as like, you know, well, if the, they're going to, if they were going to make a university course of how to break the fourth wall, yes. this would be like entry one in the syllabus. This, yeah. this is the most elegant use of fourth wall breaking. Like, I mean, right from that intro where he's, he's literally supposed to be doing an interview like for the magazine or the TV or the BBC. And yet he's, he and he is do playing his part, but he's also commenting to you as the watcher and making a comment on what's going to happen in the movie, and then mocking <laughs> a portion of the audience for whether or not they may understand the reference or not because these bands are were still niche. There's like eight levels yeah. of yeah. you know things interspersed, and it's all done so smoothly and it never breaks flow it never stops to to say look at how damn clever it is it just is clever and that's why this movie is so damn good it is and mm-hmm. then i feel like the whole movie has that sort of feel um or i feel it's it's like a, it's like a kaleidoscope of styles and film stocks and at one point it breaking the fourth wall at one point you know there's freeze frames and it just it and uh there's there's like sort of uh, Stan Brackage inspired credits where yeah you know where where words and stuff are literally scratched onto the emulsion, um, like I believe yeah when they how when, much of an influence was the opening credits for Twenty Four Hour Party People and the tone on Edgar and, Wright for Scott Pilgrim that's, a, that's yeah that's what I, ex- it, I said the exact feels like Scott Pilgrim is like the the kindergarten video game version of Twenty Four Hour. <laughs> 
party people and and the fact that you have Coogan in Edgar Wright films and I mean Simon Pegg is in 24 hour party people right. it's just it's fascinating I know the British film industry is a small one so there's inevitably going to be overlap with actors and writers and and things but it, when you, if you were to watch Scott Pilgrim and 24 hour party people back together they they do feel like this weird you know, British subgenre of two films. <laughs> I said, yeah, I said yeah. the exact same thing to uh, my girlfriend. Because uh, it's funny, because I walked out of Scott Pilgrim being like, oh, I didn't know he was a big fan of Stan Brackage. Like, because that, that intro, like, yeah, that exactly. opening credits. Yeah. And then, like, oh, no, he's just a big fan of uh, Michael Wynn. And, and of course, you know, Edgar Wright, he directed a lot of music videos, and he loves that. Uh, you know, he loves British music, and he loves. So you know that, you know, 24 hour party people would hold a big place in his heart. Uh, just for that reason alone. Yeah, it seems like here he's sort of integrating the energy and the love of music into the actual film style, which is really interesting. I mean, it's almost like genre hopping. I mean, like some of the. I mean, obviously we stick to one era of music, and most of those bands. Well, not just, but not just as real quick. One of the things I love about him, not just one era, one city. We yeah. never see the. We never see New Order touring and right. seeing them. Like we see How a little bit play of fo- out in other we countries. see a little bit of footage of Happy Happy Monday in with Barbados, mm-hmm. like just doing all the drug stuff. But like it pretty much stays in Manchester, and that's what I sort of love about the movie. Anyway, go ahead. No, well, it's fine. Two, two things on that. Oh, sorry, you go ahead. Then no, I'll that's talk. okay. Um, <laughs> I know it's like we get so excited, much like uh, uh, Tony Wilson does in this movie. We yeah. get really excited about talking about this movie. You know, I mean, I've I've probably brought this up a half a dozen times on other episodes too, but. For, for like with natural born killers in that sort of style uh, you know can, you know just different film <clears throat> styles sort of bleeding into one another you know in a very manic ADHD kind of fashion that doesn't work as effectively it's o- it's so over the top and overbearing but we're in this no it's it, it's satire it in natural born killers whereas right. it's a natural fit here yeah yeah and that's why this appeals to me a lot more it feels it feels more natural to me, and I, that's the thing I've noticed about Winterbottom is that his films feel organic, depending on what story he's trying to tell. And that's and yeah, and that is again, I, th- I think biopics because they depict such a large period of time compared to most stories told in movies, mm-hmm. and they have such a large cast of characters compared to most. I feel that they are sort of inherently fractured. Um, and I feel like a lot of filmmakers go for something like this, not. You know, uh, I, I actually before we started recording this, I did a, a blog post on the uh, on, on our blog about how I always avoided twenty four hour party people because the horrible DVD cover on the MGM release yeah made it uh, looks like Party Monster. Or yeah, something. no, it looked like Party Monster, and I and Party Monster is actually the same way where it's about this sort of rave culture that grew in New York, and it's and they break the fourth wall. Like you can tell they're trying to do, but it, it's so obnoxious and it. Uh, in a way that this movie just totally isn't. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of like... Well, Natural I, Born Killer... Yeah, go ahead. ...is completely... It's... 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 Uh, it's a movie of, with, that uses negative energy to tell the story. In fact, almost all of... Uh, Oliver Stone's movies, whether they're a happy story or not, he uses sort of negative energy to tell the story. Whereas all of Winterbottom's films, whether they're sad stories or happy stories, somehow he uses positive energy to tell the stories. It's just a it's just a radically different philosophy to filmmaking, and I, and I think that's why 
Michael Winterbottom, um, well, A, he, he endears to a lot of a small group of people really well because his movies, even when they're about bad things, have this positive energy. Mm-hmm. But it, it also it tends to, because they're not as angry, they tend to be always, like, M- Michael Winterbottom's entire filmography is underrated. Like, you know, you pick one director and you go, yeah, their most underrated film is this. Well, Michael Winterbottom's most underrated film is every film he's ever made, <laughs> except for Nine Songs, which I don't like. But uh, it feels like every none of his films do well over here at all, but they're all great. And, and it just sort of, it's kind of baffling to me. And I can understand why a movie like 24-Hour Party People doesn't exceed, because it's sort of like a meta-punk movie. Meta punk meaning it's punk with meta ness in film. Yeah, like, yeah. So it plays with the film form the way punk music would be trashing pop and 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 rock and and, yeah. and everything. And obviously that's perfectly appropriate to this movie. But Winterbottom's style in general is this meta punk, like where he's like you said, where he's incorporating documentary footage and slamming it together, but doing it in such a way that it 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 feels. It doesn't feel as unnatural as you'd expect it to feel. He mm-hmm. does actually have a way of smoothening it together, much like the way Steven Soderbergh, who really, I mean, you can call Michael Winterbottom the British Steven Soderbergh, or you can call Steven Soderbergh the American Michael Winterbottom, but both of them tend to get away with telling their stories in unusual ways. Even when they're slick commercial vehicles, they tend to still be using arty film techniques to to tell it, and I cherish both filmmakers for that reason. Yeah, he yeah. never feels like he's showing off or being like ostentatious, like, oh, let me try this, let me try that. It seems to fit the the, the energy of the music. Um, and, and to me, like, that's... I, I really admire when a movie can feel like listening to a song, and <laughs> you know, even when the, when the rave culture scenes come on, it's like how many times have we seen, you know, even in something like Vanilla Sky, a club scene, and at this point in time, it's so overplayed that it, beca- it can be boring or almost uh, laughable when you see people dancing in a club. But here, everything sort of flows really well together, even as we're jumping in time or... Like to me, the the thing I've noticed most consistently is that I don't, he's not really as interested in the story arcs, but he's more interested in the immediacy of humans interacting in this unknown world or dealing with new feelings. It's like again something that I gravitate towards in movies. I like it when it feels like we're observing rather than actively interacting. But I mean that happens in this movie. You you, you feel like you're a part of of certain moments too. Which is really nice. But all the fourth wall breaks tend to give you that guided tour yeah. feel, which is kind of interesting. And it's funny because we were talking about Equilibrium and how ham-fisted <laughs> it is with its literary references. And when you watch Tony Wilson do his thing, he basically does exactly yeah. the same thing. But he has that British air of self-deprecation, <laughs> which Kurt Wimmer cannot ever do like yeah. Yeah, and and when it, when he's you know quoting um william blake uh it, it just feels funny or when he's talking about icarus or when i mean tony wilson has a hilarious and a appropriate appropriate um literary reference for every situation and of course he's telling all these people in you know like the club scene and and, and of course he's being this you know I, I guess it's in steve coogan's blood to do that but that's his thing it's always been his thing but it, it feels like i know people love um uh a lot of his television work but for me 24 hour party people is 
the iconic Steve Coogan role. And, uh, you know, it, it really, he's done it many times, even with Winterbottom afterwards. But this one feels the most natural of the bunch. Yeah, and um, and what I think, what I think really works about the approach. Now I know um, Winterbomb didn't write the movie, but what, it's it's a it's a, like a fans movie where like if I hear stories about people I love, like like I I hear I there was this one thing I read once where it was like ten stories, and there are these like apocryphal kind of mythical stories about Leonard Cohen and it's and I'm pretty sure most of them aren't true but I just want to believe them <laughs> and in the same way this movie and that's why it's so great that it like sort of follows Tony Wilson more than any of the musicians cuz he is this fan and he you know he he was part of the scene and he you know he fucking created the scene but he did it because he was a fan of this music and of these people and uh, it and it feels like a love letter to it because you get all these stories about you know and you get Steve Coogan saying all right legally we don't know if this is true or not but you know uh, like John Ford said <laughs> print the legend <laughs> yeah I like it when characters come out of nowhere and say well, uh, this didn't have that great line where oh sorry oh that's okay I just was saying he has this great line where he says um, uh. Fuck it, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, um, stupid Skype. Um, no, he has this great line at one point where he says, I'm a bit player in my own story, which right. I kind of like. That's really the, the vibe of the movie. <coughs> yeah. Um, I love the... My favorite scene is the scene with the pigeons and the yeah. uh, uh, Ride of the Valkyries, Valkyries playing. Where the... <laughs> I don't know why they added like machine gun sounds to pigeons falling from the sky. <laughs> and the point of view shots of yeah. the pigeons. Very charming. He does point he does a, he does uh I mean we're gonna talk more about it in code uh, forty six, but he does uh you know point of view shots a little bit. He likes that, but Yeah. I kind I tend to like he does, those. He also affects that over the over the shoulder. Um I mean Darren Aronofsky's used it in both The Rustler and yes. Black Swan quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I always felt like Aronofsky was just ripping off Winterbottom cuz Winterbottom's kind of done it throughout his entire filmography. Um and uh I mean I guess it's just another type of shot, but I I find that Winterbottom was one of the first filmmakers that I can really remember people doing that. You follow just behind them kind of shot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole, the whole movie is, Mm. you know, not only incorporates documentary footage, but is shot like a documentary. Yeah. Um, where you feel the, the cameraman steps as they're following, you know, uh, like especially to hold true with a lot of his movies, even if, yes, you know, even if they're not necessarily, and I love, Documentary, yeah, and I love, I love, uh, I love that style of shooting. Um, I, I feel like a lot of indie movies now. What they'll do is it'll be handheld, but it'll be like a lot of like quick zooms and stuff like that, where which it, where it like zooms in on faces in yeah. ways that like it doesn't actually feel like a documentary because no documentary cameraman would zoom in just on a person's nose, you know, yeah, or something like that. And I feel like this. I is, think Paul Greengrass does it really well. Oh, does he do that a lot? Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't really watch his. The the Bourne movies. movies are really good. I think. I so. never watched any of them. Uh, he did, yeah, I like he'll... I like Greengrass's style. Um, yeah. Also, if you do, it is it's not entirely true when you say you don't see that in the, that zooming in documentaries. In Give Me Shelter, the the Rolling Stones doc that we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, there's a couple scenes because they were capturing stuff 
you know, as it was happening, and then they found the story after From a distance, they had yeah. shot all the footage. And some of the shots that they have to use where they capture something is where the cameraman was setting up their focus. So you actually have these, you know, weird, you know, zooming in and out to focus on something. Well, no, but it's something happened there, so they kept it right. It's rare, but it's it's rare, and like there'll be like a scene of I feel like a lot of also a lot of. Uh, I, I, maybe the shield was the first. A lot of cable sort of dramas and action movies, do, uh, action shows, sort of do this as well now, where it'll just be like a person sitting on a chair with their head in their hands or whatever, and it'll <laughs> keep cutting between two shots of him, and it like it, it. I don't. I can't really explain it, but it doesn't feel like a normal documentary because you're because it's going too close and it's uh, and it and it's often too high contrast. Um, compared to most documentaries, you know, and yeah, um, well, the documentary aesthetic has crept into f- feature films. Like now, you with all the found footage films and 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 like weird films like District Nine, which is like half document. Like it, yeah, it feels I didn't, like I, it's shot by a documentary. That was confusing. Why they dropped that halfway through the movie is completely beyond me. It it was almost like a deal breaker for me when they're oh, really? like a documentary and then all of a sudden it just becomes a film. No, I still um, like that movie, but, but that was a weird choice. I mean, I guess... I, but in 24 hours... Oh, go ahead. No, I, well, I was going to say, uh, I guess, I mean, you can't keep it as a documentary once he's on the run because there's no cameraman, but that then don't make the whole first half of the movie a documentary. Uh, but yeah, part I, of me wants to say that's daring, but at the same point, it, it, most of me wants to say that that was just sloppy. Yeah, no, it feel it feels more sloppy than a uh, sort of like new wave kind of. We'll just do what we need to do, you know. Yeah, I, it's interesting because like I I was thinking a little bit of uh, Todd Haynes um, watching Twenty Four Hour Party People because of Velvet Goldmine sort of has that sort of glam, yep, uh, sensibility about it. Um, I mean, that movie seems to be more hinged on the sexual identity, as a lot of Haynes' films tend to be. Um, and sort of like the experimental nature of I'm Not There is, yes. is, is definitely um, apparent. But I, I feel like there there were some elements of I'm Not There that didn't work quite as well. And maybe that's because <laughs> there are some elements of Bob Dylan himself and, and his career that just didn't work. Yeah, so yeah. That, that can <laughs> it's be... It's par uh, for the course. Right. But here, everything just flows with energy. I don't think there's a single shot in this movie that doesn't work. Like, even the pigeon stuff is, you know, and (laughs) and all the bad sort of artificial look of the scene. And like you said, where they're layering in sound effects, which make no sense. It's just a wonderful and arc. Uh, like anarchic scene in the exactly. middle of the movie, which captures the tone of the movie, which is what every other scene within the movie does. They just did it in a different way for that scene, and it and it totally works. Um, but back to the documentary thing, I think what makes this feel more raw and more documentary-like is that this movie has no score. I mean, it has a soundtrack, no doubt, <laughs> yeah. but there's no actual traditional score right, in the movie. Sorry, never so when Tony noticed. Wilson and, and whoever... You, Patty Considine plays are just walking down the street and into the club. You hear car noises and bogs, dogs barking, and and it just has a very natural soundtrack, which is you know it, it kind of seems apropos with the sort of gritty factory Manchester feel. You know, you don't want it to be all glossed up until you go in that club. Then it's glossed up right. because that was the world within that world, right? Yeah. Whereas like Velvet Goldmine sort of felt more fantastical. And, uh, you know, like, just sort of to highlight the, 
the glam aspect of that era. This feels a lot more natural. It feels like a dream. <laughs> no, but it's funny you mentioned I'm not there because I totally felt like I'm not there was, was took a lot from this movie because I'm not there also feels like just sort of a whirlwind uh, not interested in necessarily telling the truth, but yeah. in capturing the feeling and the feeling inspired maybe by the music and by doing it in sort of a you or know, the mythology of right no exactly and in uh, in doing it sort of a way that doesn't always if you don't know the story already it's hard mm-hmm. to follow what's going on and um something like that I feel like I feel like this I mean I don't. Uh, this feels like sign of the first biopic to go in that kind of direction. And again, it's not exactly a biopic because it's not about Tony Wilson's life as much as it is about the scene. The but, world that he was involved with. But it, really, in a lot of ways, it plays like one. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Oh, I wanted to mention the, the – this is actual, I believe, fact, but I, I love the fact that – Werner, ha- Werner Herzog's Strozek makes a cameo in this yes. movie. Yes, well, I was, I was, I was going to... Uh, because that was the last... Uh, Ian, Ian Curtis, uh, I looked actually went onto his Wikipedia after I watched this. Uh, he saw Strozek, in, yeah. which is my favorite Herzog movie. He saw that in theaters. Um, by the way, not if you're, if you're going to have a movie to put you over the edge, that'll do it. Uh, <laughs> um, that last scene is yeah. pretty damn wonderful, awful. Yeah, mm-hmm. and which is the scene that is playing on the television. Um, and uh, I actually I actually said, uh, oh, that's Strozek on the – like because I, I didn't know that yeah, – that was the last movie Ian Curtis actually saw. I'm like, that's Strozek. That's interesting because Strozek is sort of a person – about a person, you know, just sort of driving into their oblivion head on. Uh, and then – but yeah, and I think it's also kind of fitting because I feel like – I feel like Herzog – uh, is sort of an inspiration on Winterbottom as far as the way he combines, you know, like I already said, documentary and sort of fictional filmmaking. Yeah, it seems like a director's like homage flourish, and then yeah, you go you go to the actual record, and you're like, wow, Ian Curtis did actually watch that right before he died. It just seems like it, it, it's it's like some sort of uh, science experiment where you the data is too perfect, and you go, oh, that can't be right. Everything's too perfect. There's got to be some error in there. It just, but it just made me. Uh, it just, it, it was pretty wonderful. Um, it was pretty wonderful. And while we're talking about Ian Curtis, um, Michael Winterbottom tends to have a real good sense of casting character actors for his films. If you watch, he, he does occasionally use movie stars, and, and we'll, we'll see that in, 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 um, uh, in Code 46, although even those stars, I would argue, are more character actors than stars. But the fact that Sean Harris has got to be one of my favorite working British character actors. Hmm. Um, he was the crazy Drexel-inspired drug dealer in Harry Brown, he oh, was the yeah. creepy, disturbing cop in the Red Riding trilogy. Like one of many disturbing cops, but the most disturbing of all the disturbing cops. And uh, he is the villain in this upcoming action film, which you guys should totally check out, called A Lonely Place to Die. Um, and uh, he's just one of those actors. I just love watching him do his thing. And I would never – this had to be one of his first films because yeah, he's so – clean shaven and whatever but yet he channels that i haven't seen the anton corbin uh 
Joy Division biopic, but I don't know. For me, on screen, it's Sean Harris is all will always be in Curtis. Yeah, like, yeah, does, no, I, he, I totally agree. Just perfect. No, yeah, and and it's and it, I, even though it, it has this weird, there's this weird uh, s- sort of paradox going on when he's performing, where mm-hmm. if where he's not even really lip syncing to the actual song like perfectly well, um, like but it feels exactly. Right, like yeah. this, like it both. It feels like a like a real performance. Like he's really singing it. And he's really in Curtis, really performing to this crowd. Um, but it doesn't feel like but, an imitation. But what I'm, but it doesn't look like it's right. But it looks like an actor, you know. Um, no, he's so that that whole Love Will Tear Us Apart scene. I mean, Love Will Tear Us Apart is such a fucking good song, and I can and just like you get that first shot of the crowd when that song starts mm. and there's something is like clicking in their eyes. It's such a fucking beautiful moment. And cause that's such a, that's like, that's the moment you live for with music. Yeah, that, absolutely. That sort of har- harmonious yep. unity that and, you have. And that sort of, I mean, uh, the, the sex pistols first concert is, is more of a way to set up all of the characters that you will be seeing later in the story. Um, you know, it's, it, it, you don't, you don't get to experience their experience of it because Steve Coogan is explaining it to you. But that first time everyone hears Love Will Tear Us Apart again, it's like such a fucking magical moment. And just the energy in that one scene makes you totally buy everything else that happens. Like there's so many movies about music and bands and stuff where even if it's about a real band, like you'll like I'd say like um walk uh in walk the line I was about to say walk hard uh in walk the line like you never really feel what it would be like to hear Johnny Cash for the first time like there's that scene in the I think in the is it the record company or whatever that he's first playing and he's yeah he's playing in Sun Studios I think okay and it's and it's and it doesn't there's not really I don't I don't ever really like that scene because it's supposed to be this sort of big thing where he goes from singing about God to singing about being an outlaw. I'm inventing a whole new thing of country and it doesn't feel and that doesn't but it doesn't like feel special I guess yeah uh, in the way yeah, that it just feels rote and I find a lot of that movie feels rote yeah no it's not the movie that Johnny Cash deserved that's for sure I would agree especially after reading his autobiography there's so much shit that they could have thrown in there that would have been a lot more interesting well I'm, I think I, I think that might go down as being like the last uh, well not the last because obviously Hollywood will continue but i think i think uh i don't think biopics do that as much anymore where it's just a straight i think the combination of i'm not there which was sort of a you know critical darling and uh walk hard which just so completely and totally nailed everything that is cheesy and it down and cheesy and phony about these kinds of movies like i don't think how um, are they going to do the nirvana biopic well, How are they going to uh, capture the zeitgeist of teen did spirit? It already. They yeah. Gus Van Sant already yeah, made it. There you go. Uh, well, I don't think I don't. Th- says everything you need to be said for Nirvana, as far as I'm concerned. Really? I don't. I don't. I wouldn't say that. Nirvana. I love. I love Nirvana. I love Last Days too. But I don't think uh, we'll discuss really captures, that. Yeah, we'll discuss uh, that in the future. Yeah, we. Yeah, we have a Gus Van Sant com- episode coming up. Yeah, that'll be fun. Um, uh, last thing I want to say about 24 Hour Party People. Yeah. Is that you? Not only is this the iconic sort of 
opening collaboration between Michael Winterbottom and Steve Coogan, which has proved so fruitful if you've seen uh, Tristram Shandy and The Trip. But it's also the first time on film that Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon get to go at it. (laughs) Rob Brydon has a very small role in this. Both scenes he has with Steve Coogan feel like the genesis to their chemistry in Tristram Shandy and The Trip. And I, I just... It had been a long time since I'd seen 24-Hour Party People when I watched it again before we recorded this. And there were just lots of little Easter eggs because there's <laughs> – I mean there's just a lot of weird – like they're not cameos. They're people playing characters. But like Andy Circus playing um, the, the, the music engineer um, oh, yeah, that's is right. awesome. Like yeah. he's probably his best performance ever and I'm a huge fan of him in like the prestige and 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 his motion capture work and stuff that he's done with Peter Jackson but here he's just flat out fantastic and then there's like a Simon Pegg like two minute cameo and uh which uh, well, back then probably wasn't even a cameo up. no it was just him getting a tiny little role right um absolutely that's and that's but kind of now it feels kind of weird right and yeah. that's that's actually kind of special because there's all these people who have gone on to in the same way that all of these people you know who went on to change the 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 music as we know it were in that small room during uh during that Sex Pistols concert like there's all these people in this movie <laughs> a lot of great character actors who went on to do some great work yeah that's interesting. This just keeps getting more and more meta. Maybe we should have like a commentary, like someone commenting on the podcast over our track. It's a it's it's a great movie. It's definitely my favorite uh, Winterbottom movie that I saw, um, and I'm really it's happy. It's right I saw up there. It. Yeah, definitely. So let's get on to something completely different because yeah. we'll, we'll, we're going to have a very interesting discussion about Winterbottom's Code 46. My name is Maria Gonzalez and I'm reporting a Code 46 violation. Genetic codes will decide everything. There's been a fatality in Asia. Someone died yesterday. I heard. The way you live. How do people live out here? It's not living, just existing. Where you can travel. You're not covered for the Asia area. Yeah, but I, I don't want to be here. I want to leave. I want to go home. And love. Tell me what you're doing later tonight. Is that a question or an invitation? And who you can't. What's your relationship to this woman? I just want to know about her. So am I under surveillance? Any liaison would be a code 46 violation. How can that be? Winterbottom's foray into the brave new world of science fiction in 2004 was met with varying degrees of praise and dismissal. Code 46 brings about an interesting concept about restrictions on interpersonal interactions, including the act of sex, which the title refers to um, a possible pregnancy resulting between two people with all too similar DNA. There is an allegory here about the prevention of feeling, uh, despite the fact that William, played by Tim Robbins, has been injected with an empathy virus. Um... He's been hired by the government to uh, investigate phony IDs, and uh, at one point he's interviewing Samantha Morton, who he who plays Maria, and they eventually um, have a very intense connection. And maybe here love was never meant to sort of manifest itself, but fate seems to indicate otherwise. Now, there's some elements of this movie that I really, really really loved uh the score just the overall look the the feeling that the world this world that he creates has it's um 
I don't know how I would describe it right off the top of my head, but so like just there's it's, certain things. It's got kind of a um, I guess I guess the first movie to do that would be like Alphaville or something, but it's sort yeah, of a lived yeah. in future where it or and then of course Blade Runner. No, most it has an authenticity. It. Yeah, totally um, for sure. Where it it f- sort of feels like it's cr- it, and then of course Terry Gilliam did it in a completely different way, but it feels like both futuristic and just um like you know, you're very visiting current. Well, yeah like you're visiting japan right <laughs> i mean there's like there's this really great moment where the two lead characters are driving through a desert and the film sort of speeds up for a brief second and there's this amazing ambient piece playing uh, but there's also <laughs> the choice to use sporadic narration thrown in to sort of accentuate exactly what the character is thinking at that moment and that sort of trope really bothers me yeah uh one of my pet peeves is like when a character says something out loud and then the inner monologue almost repeats the exact same thing or comments on what that person just said uh it's kind of like that whole moment you know it sort of succeeded and failed for me because i'm looking at the scenery i'm hearing this music i'm sort of enveloped by winterbottom's vision but i am not connecting to these characters at all um I don't know. It's like nothing ever really congealed for me. The the one thing I, I really got out of this movie, what were the, some of the ideas? Like, I like a lot of the elements, but as a whole, I never felt um, completely invested in the story or these two characters. Um, I don't know if it's just because I find Tim Robbins to be very languid and sort of stoic and uh, Morton sort of plays kind of the manic pixie dream girl role here. Uh, a minor version, but yeah, definitely, definitely uh, more minor minority report <laughs> <laughs> integrated version of that sort of caricature. But um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's there's just something missing from this movie, despite admiring a lot of things about it. Kurt, uh, so yeah, Kurt, I know well, you're first a fan. Off, you're flat out completely unabashedly wrong uh, about that i think I, I this this quite possibly is my favorite post like new millennium science fiction movie ever made interesting and it's been a, a pretty good run of science fiction films yes. to come out since the year 2000 um and i would say this is for me that the absolute top shelf this is both in homage and 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 in to me significance uh you know this Centuries Blade Runner. Um, I mean, clearly it 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 the the, the writer who also wrote Twenty Four Hour Party People, by the way, Frank Frank Contrell Boyce. Um, he's clearly watched Blade Runner a lot, and this movie does basically it's a it's a realistic, grounded version of Blade Runner. Blade Runner to me feels like very fantastical, and it, and the production design is just insane whereas code 46 just says well let's just look around and see what's built that we can use mm-hmm. and so they shot in different parts of the world to give this hodgepodge feel which blade runner created on a sound stage which is fine I, they're just both films use both approaches but uh, your criticism of samantha morton and um Tim Robbins, you not caring about them. I mean, did you care for uh, Rick Deckard and Sean Young's character in no, Blade Runner? I, I actually also think Blade Runner is kind of an unengaging movie that I'm not a big fan of. Um, it's, 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 it's weird because, like, I, I, I didn't buy the fact that they were falling in love in this movie. No, they have no chemistry. No, I didn't. I didn't feel no, that. But you have. You have to understand. 
you have to understand that uh, Tim Robbins is tripping on an empathy virus. So the the real question of whether he actually loves this person True. or whether the, the empathy virus just spiked. Th- this movie is really about miscommunication. The whole point of this movie is about miscommunication. The Code 46 is a genetic miscommunication to where, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you didn't realize you had that much DNA. Um, the interrogation, I mean, he clearly figures out that Samantha Morton is the thing. But I believe that the reason why he defended her was actually just a miscommunication in the application of the empathy virus and he goes out of his way and does all these horrible things just from a glitch in technology I, I, so to me it's a very ironic love story it's 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 <laughs> it's uh people act on love of what they think is love but they only get the feedback that they're given and to me all of code 46 is a gigantic feedback thing like it, it's no coincidence that when he goes with samantha morton he actually pins the blame on the one guy in the interview that had an interest in linguistics. Like if you look at all the people talk about themselves in the interviews, he actually, the guy he ends up blaming to uh, the Sphinx Corporation is the guy who likes language, which to me, the movie (laughs) is talking about the failure of language or, or rather how language enables all of humanity to work, but it also enables everyone to lie to everyone. Like animals lie differently or don't lie at all whereas humans can just have this swirl because of all the ways you can manipulate language i have a big preference when i'm watching a movie to really feel emotionally engaged either with the story or the characters um and i just i felt pretty detached from the whole experience despite like i said i liked a lot of the elements, the, the the look of the movie, the world that he creates, the score, the cinematography. There's so many things that I was really into. I was gravitating towards all these different things. It's just, for some reason, like, and maybe it'll, in a rewatch in a couple of years or something, I'll feel differently. Like, maybe it'll sink in a little bit better. But I wasn't, I, either I was, you know, I wasn't following it or, but, but like I said, like, there, there's things about it, the Oedipal nature that sort of plays out later spoiler alert i guess <laughs> but like the emphasis on her dreams the like you said the empathy virus i think is really interesting um sort of some commentary on genetic coding the the gap between the rich and the poor sort of being in the backdrop when they're driving around um like like i said there are some really great things in this movie but it didn't have to be so dull oh my <laughs> gosh you can, well, it you did. Can. It's a movie. It's it's the exact same reason why you have an issue with somewhere. Yeah, is that it's a movie about detachment. It's a movie hmm. about two detached people in radically different ways finding some way to have an attachment. So you don't expect them to be these high energy party go go people. They're they're, dull, they're, in, they're at the kindergarten level of emotional attachment. Interesting. D- dull does not mean slow or low energy. Dull means unengaging. And I just, it's, there's, I, I, I was relatively engaged. I was, not, I was not engaged. But not to the point where I felt invested or like when epiphanies come into play, I was like, oh, you know, I was really shocked or moved by what, what, how things played out. Um, but yeah, I think you, you as a whole didn't find. No, I, I really hated this movie. It's, I love the world building and I love that it doesn't get in our face about what the past of this world is 
there's not a scene where Tim Robbins is talking to a superior and superior's like, well, you know, code 46 is for this back in blankety blank, you know, year 2000, whatever it was getting this way. So we had Mm -hmm. to like, I feel like so many sci-fi movies are ruined by that, by the, by the sort of super, um, like super talky exposition, uh, that has to set up everything. And I appreciated that, but her narr- her narration kind of does that. Especially well, no, no, the no. Beginning. Her narration sets up the the tone, and it sets up sort of the characters, and it's it's more about emotion. But it's not about he does his world building completely yeah. visually, um, right? And, which I loved, and that's and that's great, and I love that. And I thought the music fit. Um, I don't like ambient scores. I feel because I, you're drunk. I, no, no. I tend to <laughs> I tend to just think that no score is better than a then I, I and then if I there has to be a score I prefer it to be melodic in some way but okay. that's just and that's just personal preference that's not a point against the movie but um it's really dull it's really <laughs> really boring I wasn't it, bored none of I the just, ideas are like no, I'm interesting never bored during this movie <laughs> I don't find the ideas interesting I don't find the ideas it felt like a res, I felt like the genetic thing is a very played idea about I feel like government controlling birth is a very played idea. I kind feel like, like Gattaca. I feel like a lot of it is like very William Gibson and Philip K. Dick. And things he's done, but it doesn't have it doesn't have what Philip K. Dick had. You know, it doesn't have sort of an intriguing story to go along with these ideas. It, it's um, and again, I appreciate the tone. I appreciate that. In its third act, it didn't become a thriller where they're shooting yeah. their way out of buildings and going on car chases. Right. I I think this is a noble failure in that it didn't fail because it was trying to be too commercial. And I will always respect that more than uh, like if it was if it was an interesting movie and then and then it sort of is afraid and then it, in its third act it turned into something else. I I feel it's a consistent movie. Um, there's not it's not without its merit, but like, there's just there's no reason to make a boring movie. Why make a that that is unengaging well, and like boring can be subjective too. <laughs> I know it's completely subjective, but I'm just saying like I because I, I wasn't care bored. about these characters. I don't know who he is. I don't know who she is. I don't know what they see in each other. I would yeah. But I, I, that's I, the point. Again, hmm. it's the point of the movie is that whatever way society has been reordered you have this you know winston smith non-personality trying to discover his personality it's we talked about equilibrium earlier and it's kind of a composition of you know fahrenheit 451 and brave new world and blade runner and and uh all other books that people read in middle school and high school good version of this Um, well, no, it's definitely the smarter version. <laughs> I, it's it's definitely not dumb, um, but it's and I I is and it, it more just, of a, is it just more of a cerebral experience rather than um, it, well I hate a storytelling. I, I also I hate that character when characters um, like 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 her like character just speaks in like riddles and just it, it's it's just. Like instead it's a of, movie about language, I, the company that controls the passports is called the Sphinx. <laughs> I know, but it's it's. I wouldn't I, be. A, I, am I, I not so? Am I not supposed to care about these characters and what happens to them? 
Am I? Is that not an issue? Like you shouldn't care about them. I would think that it is kind of a trope in dystopian literature that the main characters you you respect the journey more than the character. Ooh, okay. But I, I don't. Could, I could buy into that. But there's not a lot of because you watch Samantha Morton actually makes the earnest step forward. Tim Robbins is the one that uh, he kind of. Well, I guess <sighs> he makes the step, but I'm convinced that the step is an accident, and then. At the end of the film, he gets rewritten and reset, and yeah. whether it was a mistake or not a mistake or, or whatever, bottom line is these characters don't end up together, and Tim Robbins, being the rich, white, confined guy, carries on his life as a lie, and she's like a martyr, I, I guess, hmm. and I, I kind of – it's an interesting ending to, to this type of movie. Well, I mean, I just saw I, – I think once you introduce the element of uh... – memory erasing it sort of negates the possibility of an arc when like everything that came before it has been erased and i mean it works in something like eternal sunshine because that's kind of what the movie is about it's like well getting these um past you know uh relationships and and troubles and issues and emotional inconsistencies erased is kind of defeating the purpose of being human and, and and enjoying love and experiencing life here I don't really I, I feel like it was just sort of thrown in there and I wasn't really I don't know I just wasn't really buying into it in the way I would with with like Eternal Sunshine like I thought it was just kind of thrown in there haphazardly I still I still don't understand how making the characters interesting would have hurt this movie Like I just uh, feel like I don't know I think it's a movie about detachment I I don't think you want High energy type A characters. Well, again, I'm, I'm not saying high energy. Weird, disconnected. I'm just saying they're so boring to watch. You can make a movie about people who are disconnected with, with in a, in a way that is engaging. But this, but I don't. I just I find nothing engaging so, about so the way they like act. The scene where they're sitting and talking about he shows pictures of her kids. It's my favorite line in the whole movie where he, he talks about his kids or whatever, and she's like are your kids interesting or whatever? He's like, yeah. And it's like, how do all these interesting kids grow up into boring adults? And I, I think that's the crux of the whole movie. I, I love that line. Yeah, no, th- I didn't there, like it. <laughs> no, the, like, like I said, there are definitely moments where I sort of perked up and went, oh, I'm finally getting, I'm getting something out of the experience of watching this. Um, but it's also an issue I have with, I don't know. I mean, like outside of a couple of performances from Tim Robbins, I don't think he's that strong of a of an actor. And like the scene where she's pissing on the toilet and they're singing a song together, the like just his facial expressions made me laugh. And there's like he's almost just too robotic. And I realize that's kind of what the point too is. Like it, he's supposed to be this detached person, but if he's like an, an empathy virus, I would have think he'd be more like you know, engaging and, you know, it almost be like <laughs> like Bradley Cooper in Limitless, like on ecstasy or something. I mean, maybe I'm equating ecstasy with no, empathy. No, he's a robot. Mm-hmm. He's a robot on an empathy virus. So, uh, you know, I guess you could play it like they played it, or you'd have to play it like Data in Star Trek, and I don't really <laughs> would have not have liked that approach. Yeah. So it's interesting you know, the kind of twist that we can bring up, spoiler alert for those who want to watch Code 46, but um, it, it comes to... I know, think we've already spoiled the ending. Did we? A couple times. 
Well, I mean, what it turns out to be that he... See, that's where I got confused, too, is that they both share the very similar DNA. Is it it saying that Tim Tim Robbins basically slept with his mother? Or, like, I know she's not literally his mother, but that's where I was, like, a little bit lost. Like what happened? It was always my theory that maybe, maybe the because she had lost her finger at some point, that maybe that replacement finger was spun from Tim Robbins' mother's DNA or something on file, which would make it even more amusing to me that not only is the empathy virus and him falling in love a mistake, the actual Code Forty Six that they're both accused of and destroys them is equally a technology but the, uh, mistake. But the, meaning but- that when she got this little finger, it it. It, it it basically made it look like she was his mother. But but she but the, what they got the what but they got her DNA from was her hair, not a finger. What, are you saying the finger changed yeah, her whole the, DNA? It's or? like the fly, you know. Like once it's all combined together, it's there was enough of a match. You know what I mean? Huh. Well, I mean, I if I don't know. Um, I guess okay. I mean, here's the other question: um, What is this? What is the real world commentary in this? I get this. I get what you're saying, sort of as an intellectual exercise. But how does this? How do you feel this movie? Um, I I'm, again, this isn't me challenging you. This is me genuinely interested in what you have to say. Uh, like, how would you feel this movie? What this movie is saying about the world that we live in? Well, I think that Winterbottom is really good at tackling social issues in general. I mean, if you watch his documentaries, he he makes fairly interesting, you know, looks at the Middle East and various things going on. But he does cover the whole um, like xenophobia that something like the United States is is becoming, and the corporations running everything, and the various different. Control like we have a company well, like Monsanto no. that's been genetically engineering stuff in weird ways for a long time, and the consequences of that, and how. Well, I, okay, no, I, I know, just modern society dehumanizes I, no, people. There's, there's definitely like like Jim mentioned. There's the classes. There's the class issue, and then there's yeah, you know there's, bunch of, there's the a desert. bunch of little things, but their relationship um, and sort of and sort of what happens to them, like the main thrust of the movie. I I I felt no real I personally felt no real world sort of counterpart um so I I couldn't even relate to it on a like it felt like purely an intellectual exercise you know what I mean as opposed to so that was my my question is more like what do you think well wasn't this when this movie came out wasn't uh, racial profiling a huge topic and this movie feels like sort of a commentary on well it's yeah. you know, no, it doesn't feel that you would be prevented but from I don't, doing if everyone was racially profiled no i don't think it's i don't think it's racial because part of the main thing in the movie is that their language is so like they're in beijing and seattle but it's not beijing and seattle and and she is this clearly white woman and she her name is maria gonzalez and like I feel like it's a post it's a post racial world. Um yeah, where there is no loss in translation. Where everything has sort of mixed and there is no more well Okay, well fair enough playing on that then. It's it's like what racism was at the uh you know in the 19th and 18th centuries versus what it was in the latter half of the 20th century where you feel like 
you know, we're not lynching people and hanging people because of the color of their skin, but there's still a fair bit of racism subsumed. It's just better hidden. Right. And then <laughs> this Code 46 almost feels like now the whole world is post-racial, yet that sort of implicit stuff is even more buried. But at the same point, it's diffused through everything. So you can't ever look straight at anything. It's always peripheral vision and, and, and sort of this weird, it's almost like a haze rather than a discrete thing. Well, again, and that's, and again, that I think something a lot of post, uh, I think a lot of, uh, sort of dystopian movies, not post-apocalyptic sort of dystopian movies, um, don't have, uh, that this movie does have, which I really respected was again, I was talking about the tone is it feels defeated, uh, like at, even before the movie even begins, uh, and again, I think I think it ends up hurting it a little because I think I think the low energy, you know, I think a little energy would have helped it, but I do appreciate that that it, it that it, it just feels so defeated, and that he when she uh, after they do have sex and she, and the virus in her makes her call and report it, uh, so they you know so they will be caught. He doesn't run to st- – there's not a scene of him running to stop her. Yeah. There's not – after it happens, he doesn't shake her go, what have you done? There's, there's not a scene there's... where she, he's making her run <laughs> – where he's running away from the police, you know, where, and, she, and she's like, no, the virus in me says we must be caught. And he's like, you know, trying to keep her from – like it's – it. Like they're, it, they're accepting their it's it's defeated before yeah. it even like the second she gets up and goes, oh, you know what this virus has done to me. You know exactly where it's going and – and there's no fight put up. And I do like, I feel like a dystopian world would feel like that. Would, mm-hmm. It would feel more defeated than it would feel like, uh, there, I feel like it would be low energy. Um, I, again, I don't think that makes it necessarily a good movie because I don't, I, I, but, uh, I do like, I do appreciate that. Well, like- isn't it a fascinating inversion of the whole screenwriting like 101 yes. process? Like, I'm sure. not a screenwriter, but normal movies go from the characters are happy. There's this horrible crisis where they have to they're risen, they rise to the challenge or whatever, and everything goes back to the status quo. Whereas in Code 46, the status quo is kind of miserable, and they have a chance at happiness, but nope, they go back to the unhappy status quo. So yeah, it's a downer. It's a downer movie by pointing the arrow in the wrong direction. Right. Maybe I love it for it. Maybe most dystopian movies don't have the balls. It's got to <laughs> rain on Dune at the end of Dune. You know. Like, yeah. this movie is like, you are completely absorbed by the machine. And it's really depressing that Tim Robbins' wife uh, at the end, like his wife in Seattle, seems to sanction his eternal sunshine mind wipe yeah. to get yeah. back to the status quo. She's defeated you know, even. There's not a... Like, right. Oh, the step for step one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, I, I, I admire that Winterbottom is really interested in, in creating a world... And is very consistent with the tone and sort of, you know, the mood of the movie. Uh, and he he's less interested in the story arc or the characters, you know, having that realization. And I, I think that's, that is a really commendable component of his storytelling in general. And I really responded to that, even in this movie where... It could have just been the acting. It could have just been the fact that maybe this too detached world didn't allow me in as much as I would have liked. Or it could have just been I was too separated or my mind wasn't in the right 
place to fully embrace the movie, I would be more than willing to read an essay on Code 46. And you like that's a, a huge reason why I'm excited to have you on, because I knew you would have a, a very well-thought-out interpretation of the movie. So it, it definitely makes me want to watch it again probably not anytime soon i would I, I would more be i would be more excited to watch gattaca or um even blade runner again <laughs> um well you were talking about listening to music to fit your mood i mean if you're if you're depressed is there a better possible movie to watch than this movie maybe uh <laughs> i mean like this is a, like it's, this movie starts low kind of flirts with it not being low and then ends low. I'd probably watch Magnolia. I, I, I kind of love it for it. <laughs> another, well, another dystopian movie that is insanely oppressive uh, and depressing, a movie we have covered, would be Brazil. And, of course, that goes the opposite direction where yeah. it's super high energy. Um, I think yeah, that... Well, it makes... <laughs> it's like a dystopian farce as well. Right, right. Um, like, in, a, in the best possible sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that... I, I'm trying to think of what movies I would. I, when I'm depressed, I generally don't even watch movies because <laughs> it, it requires too much active viewing on my part. Uh, I prefer to just mope. Well, another thing I love about Code Forty Six is that they they take all of this glass and stone and metal architecture, and it is kind of interesting modern architecture. But then they use it to sort of oppress the characters with it. Like the characters yeah. always look tiny in these weird hotels with these open spaces yeah and, and yet when they're on the street it's like blade runner it's like the uh the sprawl yeah like i when thought, they're, when I thought of that when, when they're and, and when they're in their skyscrapers for sure it made me think of uh of um sean penn in in in, in tree of life where he's constantly you know viewing his surroundings as if they were oppressive or something <laughs> you know and it's like he doesn't feel engaged in that environment um, and it's tough because even yeah, kind of majestic. The the stone is kind of majestic in its own way, right? Yeah. No, I mean, like like I said, I didn't dislike this movie. Um, maybe it's something where I have to be in the right mood or the right frame of mind to fully um, embrace it. And it's something where, like I said, it 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 definitely inspired a lot of ideas, and there are things about it that I I really responded to. As a whole, especially when it ends on a Coldplay song, um, <laughs> I kind of just tuned out. And they could just be yeah, personal but preference. Coldplay wasn't Coldplay when this movie came out. <laughs> right. Wait, hold on. When no, this movie came out in two thousand three. When did Russia Blood to Head come come out? Russia Blood to the Head, I think, came out in two thousand two. Maybe because that 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 album was huge, and that's what the song is from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So two thousand two. Coldplay, they weren't. Yeah. They weren't U two sized Coldplay, but they were still pretty big. It right. does. It feels a little. It, it does. It, it, it obviously, uh, obviously, I don't think this is what happened because I don't think any other single part of this movie, apart from maybe the, the DVD cover, which seems to follow the Michael Winterbottom tradition <laughs> of being really ugly. Uh, <laughs> I don't think any single part of this movie is compromised. Um, if right. any other movie ended with they stuck a Coldplay song at the end, I'd be like, oh, they stuck a Coldplay song in the end because they wanted Coldplay. But I just <laughs> maybe he loves Coldplay. And I'm sure he God loves bless Coldplay. Him. Well, isn't it more than balanced out by the Mick Jones cameo? God, that was so um, great. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I, it like took me a while. That, I mean, it's it's the it's kind of on the nose, like singing "Should we stay <laughs> or should we go?" But you gotta love that. I oh, mean, no, he's there awesome. with his whiskey and his cigarette, and he's just like it's just fucking a sublime know, moment the, in the movie. And, and the best part of it is, it even works as like it works on a bunch of layers. Number one, it's kind of funny that there's just you know that there's in this. I like I like the way that they establish that it's a world uh, that is from this world as opposed to just alternate universe by. Having the same history and Roadrunner cartoons and stuff like that, uh, and then uh, so number one, it's funny because it's just like he—it's a funny guy, it's a drunken guy singing karaoke poorly. Number two, <laughs> it's it, it, it plays as sort of a commentary on the story and sort of the characters, uh, you know, where the characters are at that point in the story. And then number three, it almost kind of plays like he himself has had his memory erased and forgot how that song actually goes. <laughs> like, he forgot he was in the slow. band that made it. Like, I picture that as actually him. <laughs> like, he's playing himself. <laughs> Good point. It's pretty awesome. Um, the other... Uh, speaking of, like, uh, what I said before about Winterbottom having awesome choice and character actors um there's a scene when he goes to the clinic to find maria and he deals with that clerk oh she's who, my favorite part of the whole movie benedict yeah. wong who's in almost all of winterbottom's films and he's he's literally like a robot he just keeps he's like one of the characters in x descends within the video game world where he just completely keeps repeating his thing and then you compare that scene to benedict wong in Danny Boyle's Sunshine, which is another British science fiction movie, which I really love and I think is completely misunderstood, um, and how emotional and full of energy Benedict Wong is in that movie. I just find mm. that as a wonderful I, pairing. I, I will say, I really like. I really like the contrast between that guy who, and by the way, this is one of the most annoying things about, and I, and probably one of my favorite uh, sort of commentaries in the movie is how you know as how like capitalism and corporations that like turn people into robots because i've always just been so annoyed by like greeters at groceries i think mike judge did a really great part great thing in uh idiocracy when he had the person like hi welcome to walmart i love you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh and like and like you have these sort of because i've worked retail like most of my life and you have these automated responses uh, is this sort of sad de- but de- true as this defense mechanism and then he just heightens it by not only saying the same thing over and over again but by saying it in the exact same cadence as if it's just a recording <laughs> yeah. and then i love how that uh contrast with the uh the woman at uh i guess the the clinic out sort of outside um where she's just like kind of sarcastic and sort of has life and is yeah um because she know, like she she kind of gets, she kind of reads him right away that he's trying to do the old, I guess the X Files would call it the whammy, <laughs> the whammy on her where he reads her mind, uh, and and she's just sort of toying with him, and that I think I thought that scene was fun too. Well, bring, bringing in the Oedipal complex into the science fiction world is certainly, uh, um, speaking of which, uh, very I do audacious. Wanna, I do want to talk uh, talk about the sex scene. That. Which I thought I thought both sex scenes were very well filmed. You know, I mean, well, I think first, he's good at shooting sex. I, I thought the first one was more or less fine. Like I didn't, yeah. didn't, I didn't really think anything of it. But that second sex scene is very unusual. Um, and yeah, uh, the way it's filmed. I, I wanted to know because that was another. That was a thing where I'll just flat up admit I didn't really get what he was going for there. 
He was completely focusing on her. Where it went back to the POV shot, I believe. Um, I believe mm. that at that point the camera was acting as Tim Robbins' POV. Okay. Well, I kind of like the POV shots because it really, like you said, manic pixie dream girl. I don't think, you know, I understand that you don't mean it like not totally manic. like these no, other films. No, not it, like Natalie Portman or something. She is a real creature to yeah. Tim Robbins. She's sort of this not she's kind of androgynous she's kind of she's got those really piercing blue eyes Mm -hmm. she's kind of like dressed down and punk but at the same time she does work in this corporation and she's randomly helping people at high risk to her she's so alien to everything that tim robbins stands for that doing those povs where you just see her like walking down a corridor during the sex it just to me it just enhances that i can't believe i'm actually doing this which is what sort of Hmm. tim robbins is feeling right yeah and then of course and of course there's the really really interesting sort of obviously obviously not rape because they make very specifically to they have a conversation about consent but where he has to tie her down because her body has been trained to fight him right um that was a really interesting source but that's the most sex possible when she's it's like she's tripping on a repulsion thing while she's mentally into it. Like to me, that is like the height of post post modern sex. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. it's, it's like, it's hard to depict love and sex because it's hard to, it's hard to watch two people have sex and think about them as people, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably why so much pornography yeah. is just horribly dehumanizing and everything. Um, but I, 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 definitely I feel like people, Closer. No, no, absolutely. Because that's not the person you actually look into their eyes while you're fucking them. Well, here's the thing: is she, <laughs> her body is completely rejecting him, and she knows this, so she has him tie him up. Like that's a really true statement of love. Uh, yeah. yeah, and trust. Yeah, and he discards her, or I, that's why I love this movie. That's why I love Michael Winterbottom because he's never, there's never a straight line anywhere. Not so, no, I, I would agree with that for sure. I'm not sure it, it worked as effectively in this as a lot of his other films, which we're going to definitely talk about. Then, I, th- I think it's one of those cases, though, where I'm watching this movie wanting to know more about like the viruses they're being injected with, like maybe making a commentary on pharmaceuticals and mind control or body control. You know, it's like one of those things where like I'm getting ideas as I'm watching the movie, but the movie is not necessarily following up and that's that's you know okay, not that's not I fair code 46 works as a piece of science fiction because what happens in code 46 is not evil it's not right. mad scientist it just is and when we exist in the world ipods just are yeah <laughs> and, and that's why no that's any other that's movie a good point. no one, for sure one feels authentic because things just are no and that's and then again that was that's sort of a big part of what I said earlier about what I respected, how there's no real villains in this movie. Um, at the same time, all of these things that you, a, a lot of these things villain. you said, um, <laughs> and obviously this is this is sort of a hard conversation or whatever, but to to have objectively, but like are are things that never occurred to me when I was watching the movie, and I guess is that the failing of the movie, or is that my fail? You know what I mean, like. Because I feel like maybe in five I feel years. like you're the one presenting these ideas, but I don't feel the movie very strongly uh, like 
makes it its goal to present these ideas. And again, maybe that was just me not picking up on it, which, you know, happens. Or Oh, yes. But it's also, I do feel like if a movie, you know, if it's about what it's about, it it should... Um, Articulate those ideas more yeah, clearly. More, it, it should. No, I think I think Code Forty Six, and for that matter, a part twenty four hour party people. You could argue with a lot of Winterbottom's films. Um, they're made in an age where films are meant to be rewatched, and I don't think okay. that I certainly didn't get where I am in Code 46 the first time I watched it. I knew that I loved it the first time I watched it. Something spoke to me. But I've seen the movie like nine times. Yeah. So <laughs> I, hmm. it's a movie I watch often. It's a movie I push onto people. It's a right. movie that I then have to defend when I've pushed it on them and they go, what the fuck did I just watch? And, and But I, I just, I love that movie. Oh. And I, I really think that a lot of the great movies, particularly science fiction movies, were not really got on a first viewing sure. and they're dismissed. I mean, so many yeah. great science fiction movies are just dismissed outright because of something. And in this movie, to me, everything that I'm talking about is clearly on screen and right there. And it's practically hand-holding you with her doing the dream speech. And there's some actual, like, uh, you know, if I really wanted to play devil's advocate, there's a few things that I think may be considered clunky or, or really like training wheels. But for the most part, I like Code 46 because relative to other films, it doesn't hold your hand as much. And, it's, and it just lets everything be there. And it doesn't have to explain anything, and you just kind of get it from this particular story I, I, in this I particular su- world. Yeah, I su- I'd love for Winterbottom to revisit this world with another story. I suppose the big hurdle in getting people to rewatch it, though, is they have to enjoy it the first time. And obviously it clicked for you, uh, but it certainly did not for me. But I do own it, it almost. Now. It almost clicked. Almost. Oh, yeah? I mean, it's, that's, a, that's why I love having these discussions, you know, engaging in these dialogues with different people, because they're going to have a different right. perspective. And I, I personally, well, I think- I, I, in my own experience, especially with both, you know, the Cinecast and Film Junk, I will hear something and it'll make me reevaluate my thoughts on the movie tour. And I probably will rewatch this again. I don't know if I'll love it, but I'm definitely open to the idea of well, I, yeah, I second it. Opinion. Well, obviously, yeah, obviously, the thrust of this podcast is not to is not to determine who is right and who is wrong because right. there's no no keeping score in art. Um, but you are wrong about Rob Zombie, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to know if he's wrong because he likes him or wrong because he doesn't. I I'm apparently I'm wrong because I think Devil's Rejects is a really good movie. <sighs> I think it's a fucking masterpiece. Yes! So I'm with you on that. Yes. Thank you. Oh my and god! I, I think, but I do. I but if you're talking about Rob Zombie, I do think Devil's Rejects is kind of a fluke. Um, I feel like yeah, I, I feel like the rest of his filmography has proven he's kind of a horrible filmmaker who happened to accidentally make a. But at the same time, oh. there's, a, there's a documentary on the DVD. I don't know if you've you seen it. Get an awesome movie, then it's still an awesome movie. Yeah, no, it totally it was accidental is. or intentional. Um, but I wanted to punch Rob Zombie in the fucking <laughs> mouth after I watched that movie. Tootie fucking fruity. Shut up. Fucking <laughs> fucking end, end your movie with Freebird. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, you got to go back and listen to that. Episode. Anyway, uh, let's let's go ahead and talk about uh, the rest Please. of Winterbottom now. Please, let's so, do. I'm really sorry, Kurt, but uh, I I'm not. I think we haven't seen most of these. I've seen. I don't know. I, I I did watch three others 
you know, in, in, the, in the past couple weeks. So. Yeah, I had actually never seen, other than Tristram Shandy, I had never seen a Michael Winterbottom movie before this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, there weren't a lot of them available. We can start with uh, if you've that's seen been his problem right out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I still haven't seen, I, even though the premise is really intriguing, like a straight up genre film, uh, Butterfly's Kiss. I've never seen right. it. I was okay. going to ask. Um, yeah, I saw Go Now when it was new, and it, just because I happened to like Robert Carlyle at the time. Oh yeah, and, he's uh, good. I think it's. I, I thought it was a pretty bad movie. I didn't like Go Now at all. That's um, too and bad. then I re fell in love with him when Twenty Four Power party people came out but i haven't seen several of his films myself but the ones i have seen with the exception of nine songs which i really don't like um i i love them all so um, so jude yeah would have be you seen the one after go now and butterfly kiss jude with kate winslet yeah, and it's a it's a thomas hardy novel i haven't seen it either with kate winslet yeah that one is actually on netflix instant but unfortunately i have very poor hearing so I need subtitles uh, usually, and uh, Netflix Instant on Wii doesn't ever have them. And oh, yeah, and you can't turn up the volume loud because I my my girlfriend is the one with the Wii, and she lives with her dad. So we always watch movies <laughs> when he's asleep. So we always have to do stuff quietly. So after Jude was Welcome to Sarajevo, which was the first movie that got uh, I guess nominated is the wrong word. It just got entered into competition for the Palm Door. Um. Have you seen yeah, there's always like 15 films, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I no, I because uh, on on his Wikipedia, on the Wikipedia for 24 Hour Party People, it said, "Oh, this was nominated for Palm Door." And then I wanted to look up what else was nominated. And it was like 15 movies. I'm like, <laughs> okay, that doesn't count. <laughs> but anyway, so have you seen Welcome to Sarajevo? Nope. Okay, uh, I want you. <laughs> I think I've seen this because. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I've no. I think I've seen this movie. Um, yeah, because yeah. I, I, a little thing for Rachel Weisz. I think she's cool. Um, but I remember this being sort of a straight up sort of a genre movie, kind of a crime drama. Um, and I remember liking it, but not really finding anything um, extraordinary about it. I thought it was pretty straightforward with, you know, Rachel Weiss being, you know, uh, as good of an actress as she always is. So, Oh man. Um, okay. But this I really pre mummy Rachel Weiss. Uh, it's same year. Maybe. Uh, I'm pretty sure because I, I thought of her, like, I love her as an actress. I, yeah, I really think, uh, you know, another defending movie I would go for is Agora, which I, I think more people should uh, love. Yeah. Than actually who, do. Direct, who directed but, that? But, uh, I, I don't, I thought I came into her. The first film I ever saw her in was like The Mummy. So I just treated her as like basically Kate Capshaw. Yeah, I want. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Then I didn't. She kind of blew me away. She just kept growing and growing and growing. Right. At least in the order I watched them. I the want films. you. So if this yeah. is like a pre-Mummy film, I should really watch it. I want you came out a year before The Mummy. That's um, what I thought. So the next movie was Wonderland, which is another movie I thought I'd never heard of. It turns out it was just a movie I always looked past. Uh, because the DVD cover made it look like the worst <laughs> piece of shit. <laughs> I don't know yes. what I don't know what Winterbottom like what what who he pissed off at the you know who, no, whatever no, company. Here's, the, here's the reason I can give you the reason why. Why his films are all made by Film Four and some someone like Miramax or 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 whatever buys them and there's there's such second or third tier releases they just don't bother they, yeah. they, they're just really shame. lazy in cover design it's it's just a, it's just a sad fact that michael winterbottom's movies are never going to be 
at the top of the list commercially for importing into America, even right. though they're in English. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's funny. So, have you seen Wonderland? I, I was going to say yes, but I watched Next Stop Wonderland for some reason with <laughs> yes, Hope Davis. I always get them confused with the Brad Anderson movie. <laughs> yeah, isn't that yep. weird? No, yep. I, but I did like the Hope Davis movie. <laughs> I thought it was cute, but uh-huh. I did not see Wonderland. Well, I think if you the whole filmography of Michael Winterbottom, and admittedly, I've not seen a lot of his films, but the one thing that you noticed when you talked about 24-Hour Party People, uh, where you're talking about it seems to focus on everyone in Manchester, and then you look at um, even Code 46 is kind of about like the oppressive city. A lot of, so many of his films are about a city. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Location's you know, always yeah, big. Like Geneva or Noah is 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 a city, and the, a mighty heart, oh, mighty heart uh, with Angelina Jolie mm-hmm. is in the is it's like totally like a, this sort of ecology of a city. I find a lot of his films. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the claim, um, which no, is uh, the claim is uh, yeah, is his next one. I started to watch it. I didn't yeah. get a chance to finish it. I did finish it, and I was really, I really loved it. Actually, I was. You know, like in the same way that, uh, you know, a lot of these more revisionist Westerns have come out over the years, like your proposition or assassination of Jesse James. This one was more straightforward and told just a really good classic Western tale. Um, Didn't really aspire for like anything outside of being a really solid Western. Uh, but uh, like, there were, uh, the, well, there were elements. The, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't finish it, but there, there I, were elements of commentary of about like capitalism, yes. like sort of the same way that uh, sort of same way like like a sort of an anti-Western like like McCabe and Mrs. Miller Definitely. talks about like you know capitalism at the expense of humans. Yeah. yeah, that the final shot of this movie is something to remember. It's really amazing. Oh, I still have it from the library, so I'll I'll, I'll catch it. Definitely uh, finish it. Then then after that, of course, was Twenty Four Hour Party People. And then he did a documentary in this world. Uh, Don't know that. That is about a refugee camp in Pakistan. The- oh, okay. Um, yeah, it hmm. says it's a documentary, but the plot sounds like a fiction where it's about a, docudrama. A well, he he like especially with the road to Guantanamo. Yeah, he, it's both. It's like part documentary. Yeah, he integrated the real people into. Right. Partly of a movie, okay. right? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Now, it, yeah, it's looking like the same thing. Then Code Forty Six, then Nine Songs, which now yeah. I've heard this described, and it feels very reductive. Um, but at the same time, I've also like never heard anyone defend it. So let me just go ahead and ask: Is this people just fucking to music? Is like this just scenes of people fucking? No, no, okay. no, 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 no. No, it's not. It's actually it's it's people going to concerts. And then fucking at home without music. Okay. <laughs> oh, that sounds okay. boring. Basically, it it tries to tell the story of the collapse of a like, or sorry, the the peak and then the collapse of a, a relationship without dialogue. It tries to tell it entirely through sex scenes, so entirely through body language. You know, and how these people, and, and and really in that period of their life, they're 
they're just going to concerts. So they you see them wandering around at, you know, whatever music was playing at the time, big concert bands and small clubs. And then they come back and, and then they're in their little apartment and then and they have sex. I, I just didn't think that I, again, I, I what the, the phrase that you used earlier, um, I consider it a noble failure. I get the idea. I just, I just don't think it was executed at all. Yeah, and and, I was, uh, but you got to admit that the most amazing thing about this movie it is 69 minutes long. <laughs> 69. <laughs> I'm sure well, that was, um, had to be intentional, of course. I'm sure it was trimmed out to that limit, but yeah. uh, it feels a lot longer. The same way that, uh, same, same way that Van Zant's Jerry is exactly 100 shots and 100 minutes long. Is it really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, That's really cool. Yeah, which I think I think it was a purpose. <laughs> it was conceived, right? That was that conceived that way, or I'm, did they get close to the just molded it? To I'm fit that. I'm fairly certain it was conceived that way. Gus Van Zant seems like the kind of person who would conceive that, and it it doesn't feel like it would a, be a coincidence. Hmm. I mean, not every shot was one minute long, but it all averaged out that way. Yeah, well, nine songs had. A bit of controversy because the sex is fairly explicit. It, it's un- so it's unsimulated, you correct? See you definitely see okay. it too. It's not uh, like, um, like say, "Don't Look Now," where there's a debate of whether or not it was yeah. simulated or not. But it's it's kind of graphic, but it's not really graphic. Like it, it feels like it's graphic, but it isn't. Or like say, a lot of people think Tarantino's movies are violent. They're they're rarely that violent. They just feel violent because right. of the way they're shot. Yeah. Whereas this is absolutely clearly no bones. Yeah. Penetration. Well, well actually, some bones. Um, but <laughs> it's also shot on the work. Grotty digital cameras, and there was just an era, which is the argument I get in with Andrew on the Cinecast all the time about twenty eight days later versus twenty eight weeks later. One of my chief problems with twenty eight days later is that it's shot on a shitty digital video camera. It looks ugly. And it's almost a deal breaker yeah. for me that it looks so fucking ugly. And and twenty eight weeks later, it's just magnificently gorgeous. Um, and Nine Songs was just in that era uh, to where. You know, digital was possible, but not pretty. I think and nine songs is. I think uh, Spike Lee's "Bamboozled" is what started <gasps> that. Yeah, that's one of my least favorite Spike Lee movies. Um. Anyway, yeah, I seen it. It's. I think about that movie constantly. I think somewhere in between Hollywood Shuffle, which is a movie I really like, and Bamboozled, which is oh, a movie yeah. I don't like, but I think is more on point with its commentary. Like somewhere in between those two movies, I think is a perfect satire of um of racism of in, in culture because i feel like bamboozled is too angry um to be coherent and or to be funny in any way and hollywood shuffle is way too nice where the main thrust of it at the end is robert townsend going hey you don't you know it's like don't be an actor in these bad movies and it's like well then what do we do well you can always get work at the post office like yeah. you really want from that movie, you get so mad. You want like a burn Hollywood burn kind of ending where there's some kind of anger behind it. But like Robert Townsend seems so <laughs> defeatist. <laughs> but that movie's that movie's a lot funnier and a lot more enjoyable than Bamboozled. But yeah, anyway, Bamboozled, Bamboozled ends is with like horrible. twenty minutes of cartoons and like media imagery of yeah, it's media it, yeah throughout uh, last twentieth century of blackface. Yeah, it's like and stuff. Throw, throwing racism pies in my face. It's and it's an and it's a hideously ugly movie, which yeah. is something I really couldn't say about any other Spike Lee movie. And same goes for David. It's Lynch's. funny because it shouldn't be a deal breaker. 
it shouldn't be a deal breaker in movies, but if your movie is shot and lit badly, uh, with a very few rare exceptions, it's going to break your movie. And it's crazy because you think of movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or like there's all sorts of 16 millimeter super cheap movies. The Wicker that are, Man. Yeah, that are that are gorgeous. That, yeah. Like I never understood why like Dogma 95 and all that like in you their had, own way. It had to be so ugly. Like like I don't know why you couldn't do the same thing and shoot something documentary style. Well, I guess not Dogma 95 because they because I mean obviously they spent a lot of time lighting Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something like that, but. I think those movies are really good looking and they're cheap. And I think part of the cheapness adds to it in the same way that DV just, I don't know. I, I think DV has definitely grown leaps and bounds. Uh, so that's, at least that's good. And the um, red cam has helped out a lot. Too. Yeah. Um, so the next movie is great. I love Tristram Shandy. He really redeemed himself after nine songs. Cause yeah, his next movie is a, a wonderful comedy. It's so funny. Yeah. Um, and it, it's 24-hour party people, too. Yes. The literature, <laughs> the literature version. It totally is. And uh, I love, I mean, I think, I'm, we'll talk more, I guess we're talking more about it later, but by the time I got to the trip, I got a little tired of the, the, the Steve Coogan as a narcissist character. Um, uh, it but he does it so well. No, no, he does it well, and I, but it, it just is a little tiring, but... Yeah. Uh, Have you guys ever seen the uh, Jarmusch Coffee and Cigarettes yes, with uh, yes. Steve Coogan and um, Alfred Molina? I was actually that to me is pretty sublime, and that, yeah, I actually some was good vignettes. Yeah, I was that. looking at Steve Coogan's IMDb, and I saw that he was in that, and I love that movie. I don't remember his segment at all. What do they? What would? What, what? What do they do there? Oh, uh, it's it's hilarious. Um, Coogan is meets Alfred F- Molina for coffee at at some l- little cafe or whatever, mm-hmm. and Coogan spends all this time talking about you know all the possibilities he has going on in Hollywood, and he and he he basically just constantly smacks down Alfred Molina, who's just the nicest guy ever. <laughs> and Alfred Molina, I guess, has this thing where he's looked up the family tree and he's figured out that they're kind of like distant cousins. And I guess that's kind of why he invited him to coffee. And oh, Coogan I'm... is just poisoned by this. Oh. And then I, 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 midway through the conversation, I think Molina gets like a call from like Spike Lee or something. Yeah, it's like, yeah sure, I'm in. And and then all of a sudden, Coogan is just like it. And then and Molina's like, I got to go. I've learned your true colors. I'm out of here. It's it's very clean. It's very crisp. It's done in like eight minutes. Like, yeah, yeah. Like all, like all the best uh, segments of that movie. Right. Um yeah, no, I, Tristram Shandy is really great. I mean, again, it's it's playing off that sort of, uh, you know, m- breaking the fourth wall, the, the meta commentary on the actual film that they're filming, but it never it never feels clunky. Um, I love the phone conversation with Gillian Anderson. <laughs> yeah, and even, but even That's like, so hilarious. even in yep. a, this is more of a straightforward comedy than yeah. something like 24 Hour Party People, but even in this, like that documentary feel never leaves it. There's, I mean, the we've talked in earlier episodes about how in films, like there's sometimes just one image that sticks in your mind, or like there's just a handful of images that mm-hmm. sort of that fill up your mind when you think of the movie. And sort of the I think ending, of him in the vagina, uh, or not in the womb. Oh yeah, I forgot <laughs> all about that. Um, actually, uh, I was I think there's just when the camera's following him through the field and he's trying to pick up that not like that. That like production assistant, not a production assistant, but like oh yeah, 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 director's assistant or something. Mm-hmm. Re- Naomi Harris, yeah. yeah. And there's just 
and and like I feel like that that <clears throat> image so perfectly sums up Hollywood because they're making this movie that is super inaccessible and weird, and then they they spend so much goddamn money on a battle scene, <laughs> like an authentic <laughs> battle scene that makes no difference, right? And you see this huge, well, and I love yeah. No, go, uh, I was just saying, like, you see this huge thing playing out, and you know that it, it's just excess for excess's sake, and it's, and then you have him trying to use his power to get it, get, you know, to put himself onto her, and, and then it's all shot in documentary, so it feels like it's an actual set, you know, it doesn't, right. it doesn't feel like, say, like Tropic Thunder or something, where it, it never... feels like Inception, which feels <laughs> like you got win. so many but, layers, um, yeah. Going in and out of but different yeah, layers. But the, yeah, the fact that you have those reenactment guys, like, obsessing over every bit of minutia, like, handing out, like, um, you know, what's, like, whatever period names to the people that are extras, like, it's little touches like that that, that really endear 24-hour, like, it's, nothing was left to chance. Yeah. Um, in that movie. It just feels like, I love, uh, it is Naomi Harris, right? The, the, the black assistant i believe yeah where she keeps Mm -hmm. coming in with all these like highly literate but anyone that knows film should totally get the film references but they're completely just lost on everyone in the movie (laughs) yeah Yeah. like she'll come in and start talking about brisson films or something and 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 everyone will just go blank and go back to their narcissistic lives afterwards or whatever it's it is great um like 24-hour party people just playing on Wheels within wheels, that movie. Yeah, and I, I think the biggest laugh I got from it, well, and it's a laugh that only really works once, um, but I was excited because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge X-Files fan. I'm like, oh, Gillian Anderson, awesome. And, like, she's not hardly in the movie at all. Yeah, you're like, what the hell? Like, why Why did they get Gillian Anderson? They keep talking about Gillian Anderson. She's not in it. And then she, and then at the end, uh, when she's walking out of the screen, she's like, they cut me out of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of almost a similar joke to when he's mentioning in Twenty Four Hour Party people. He's mentioning all the cameos, and he's like, "Oh, it'll probably be on the DVD." Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, I was going to bring that up when you were talking about how these, how like modern movies are meant to be rewatched. That was a very literal <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, acknowledgement of that in that uh, in Twenty Four Hour Party people, which is what's which is what makes them so great. Also, Tristram Shandy was when it was first sort of getting into like meta stuff and meta, and it's and it and I think I think community sort of made fun of this where it's like there is like a period of time when you begin to real like when you when you understand film enough to understand when things are being self-referential and stuff and it's like you get obsessed with it cuz it's oh it's so clever and then mm-hmm. and then uh like community had an episode where <laughs> where Abed or Abed made a movie about himself making a movie about himself about making a movie himself and yeah it, the Charlie Kaufman Yeah syndrome. yeah and then uh and Shirley's like and it's like it'll be about the filmmaker making the film about the filmmaker, and then and then Shirley goes, "That sounds really great for filmmakers." <laughs> like, <laughs> were you? Uh, and so it was definitely like, you know, I'm, you know, I I respond more to actual stories being told than when things are too clever for their own good. You know, obviously not that this is anything that this movie or Twenty Four Hour Party People has a problem with, but. There is a there was like a definite point where, like I ju- you you get tired of everything being postmodern, especially as a horror movie fan. I was so happy After when Scream. I was so happy when like Saw and Hostel and that sort of I mean uh, torture porn as it got called 
sort of gets derided a lot. But one thing it wasn't was winking. You know, yeah. I had a friend who absolutely <laughs> despised, except for, except for Cabin Fever. Well, Cabin, yeah, I never even count. I thought Cabin Fever is more of like a slasher mm. kind of a thing. I had a friend who absolutely despised it's, the scene in Magnolia where Phil Seymour Hoffman is talking on the phone and saying, okay, this is the scene in the movie where you help out the guy. <laughs> and I was like, I love that. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah. I found that totally endearing. Well, that, I, well, I think it, I, it's not a it, – it's – number one, it's not about how – it's not – like I think that, I think that movie works because it's not about trying to prove how clever it is. Or and again, I think a lot of it is when, and I, probably why it appeals to adolescents so much is when you're not actually able to pull off like stories with meaningful characters and plots. As long as you wink to the audience and go, "It's okay, I know it's dumb." It's like a self defense mechanism. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like a lot of movies use it like a self defense mechanism. And I think, yeah, I think Magnolia has a couple of moments that break the fourth wall, like the painting that says, "But it did happen," and and the, sort of the <sighs> the part where they're all singing together. I think normally that stuff would bug the shit out of me. I don't think any of those things feel like a self-defense mechanism, you know? No, not at all. Whereas I think a lot of, I guess, I guess the big postmodern film wave would be after Pulp Fiction, Mm -hmm. um, where people were just talking and, oh, we're just talking and we're sort of commenting on our lives with what we're talking about. Like a lot of that felt like a cover up for someone who didn't know how to write characters or story. Or you had no story. Right. Exactly. Um, and which is something well, it's funny, the DVD moment that you mentioned in 24 hour party people it, to me it always it's it's always the inverse of the film theater moment in Gremlins 2 which I don't know how much the Joe Dante really figured Gremlins 2 would play on VHS or DVD well, no, when they made Gremlins 2 it was designed to be seen in a theater well, no, they no, changed, they, no, they changed, they changed, changed it plays so weird have you have you VHS seen have you have you seen it on VHS? Because um, on VHS, no, they, yeah. Um, yeah, no, they changed it where uh, it's like the video. It looks like a video breaking down, and instead of like I think, because I actually never saw it in theaters, so it wasn't until I caught it on cable and they played the actual original version that I first saw. It doesn't like Hulk Hogan break into the projector <laughs> yeah. booth and save yep. them? Yeah. Well, in this one, <laughs> absolutely. In this one, uh, it's it keeps changing channels. Uh, <laughs> where like the gremlins keep, oh, okay. keep so they, they yeah. did consider this yeah it keeps flickering and then at the end uh they're like in a john wayne movie and it they you know edited archival footage of john waiting sh- and then like they <laughs> sort of have a badly dubbed john wayne being like i don't need those stinking varmints in my town and you don't need them in your tv set <laughs> <laughs> Oh my well, that's god! Weird because I went from theater to DVD, and DVD has the has the film version on it. Yeah, mm. so I never actually I missed the VHS window of Gremlins too. But it's funny. I guess it makes sense maybe that Joe Dante would actually address that. But I mean, clearly, it's weird. I mean, it's the same thing if you've ever seen um, the Pang Brothers uh, breakout movie. What's the one where the girl goes blind? She gets the eye transplants. The eye. Yeah, the eye. Well, there yeah. we go. <laughs> uh, the eye. So the opening of the, the not the remake, but the original, the eye. It actually ha- looks like people are pressing hands through the movie screen. Yeah, which uh, I makes that. no sense on DVD. But when I saw it at the 
Toronto International Film Festival at midnight. It was awesome just to have that look on a massive screen at the Uptown it Cinema is, in Toronto. It is always really it looks neat. like someone's pushing the screen out at you without being, even being in 3D. It, it totally worked as an effect. I love, yeah. I love moments that really, uh, I guess they almost transform it from film into like an installation, like art piece. Yeah, um, and that's, that's a moment. And that's why I'll never watch Grindhouse on video, because it doesn't make sense on video. Uh, like, Grindhouse... Watch the movie's separate films. On, like, the, the, the two films look fine on, v- on video. Just as a complete package, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No, well, no, right. no. I've, I've watched Death Proof and stuff, but the thing is, like, Grindhouse was so great because it literally it transformed and it affected the way people watched the movie. It wasn't just a double feature of two movies like people were talking and like shouting at a movie screen when they normally wouldn't and like there were some people who like left after the first movie because they didn't realize there was a second movie and and like it was and you know there's like the commercials in between and all of that i feel like only works in a theater um yeah it creates a wholly unique experience watching a movie if they want to do and i and i always did feel like if they wanted to release the whole thing, which I think they did eventually release the whole thing on video, um, they should do like what Joe Dante did with Gremlins when he released it on VHS, where uh, they change it instead of a grindhouse theater, it's a bootleg tape, and you get like the uh, like the discoloration and sort of the warps ta- audio like videotape sound at certain points. Yeah, I think that that could work. Uh, I was I'm still disappointed that when I watch video drum, an actual hand doesn't start coming out of the TV pointing at me. <laughs> I just keep waiting for that to happen, but it just never does. Let's uh, move on. Maybe 3D TV version. Yeah. <laughs> so his next two movies actually kind of go together in a way. But um, the, the first one I, I started but didn't finish, it's a, another docudrama about uh, three three men who are from Pakistan, but they, they, they live in Britain. They decide to go to Afghanistan like a week after 9/11 and they they're going there for a wedding uh I guess but they get detained by American soldiers and sent to Guantanamo Bay and tortured basically um it's like I didn't finish the whole thing because it it gets to a certain point where I know that it's you know it it's it, this this shit really happened and you know, in the same way, when I watched um, Standard Operating Procedure, that like I have such a visceral r- response to people, you know, being tortured, and you know, he creates a, a, some pretty heavy scenes in this movie, a very, very realistic, um, and it's it's just hard to watch. I mean, I'm I'm interested to see how the story plays out. In particular, there's a follow-up documentary that, that played on the BBC called Lie Lab. And it was about um, some neuroscientists who examined the brains of these three detainees and viewed them under an fMRI machine to see if they were telling the truth about their experiences in Guantanamo Bay. I think that's really an interesting follow-up study, but that's just because I'm a neuroscience nerd. Yeah. Um, but no, I think like it's a it's a really uh, disturbing documentary once you get to the um, you know, you get past the first half and see what they went through. But it's very realistic, very intense, and very effective. And it's very, very upsetting that this shit um, went down. 
and After goes that. down probably. Yes, probably to this day. Sure. Well, he closed. Guantanamo Bay is closed, but oh yeah, yeah, not not specifically <laughs> Guantanamo Bay now, but still, just any yeah, sort of you close infliction. one, and there's going to be two or three more <laughs> smaller, yeah, right. more secretive ones. <laughs> the next one I'm a huge fan of. Now I want to I want to go ahead and say I was one of I don't know. I don't know how big of an outcry or whatever it is, but on the forum I was on, there was a bit of an outcry. And I was one of the people that dismissed A Mighty Heart um, because of the, uh, like, skin darkening of Angelina Jolie. Uh, I thought I thought it was – I thought, number one, I didn't really know about – I didn't really do enough a good enough job looking up what the actual production was. And I thought it was like a Hollywood kind of – we need to cast white people as – as you know ethnic people sort of thing like prince of persia and stuff like that yeah uh kind of whitewashing um but uh well after i saw the movie all of those plates going away because the movie's fucking fantastic and angelina jolie who i don't think is a great actress is fucking great in it yes completely agree um again there's I love this movie. I, I love this movie because it, it. What is it? Is it Karachi? The, the, the what, what's the city that it's in? Yeah, it is Karachi, I believe. Mm-hmm. And and you just really get that like it's considered one of the most dangerous cities in the world at this moment in time. And man, when you get this sort of walking through the city, yeah. it's pretty intense. It's um, very claustrophobic. It really does pull that off in spades i know when um andrew and i uh started doing the uh cinecast uh, or andrew was doing it for a while by himself and then we met at a film festival and we started doing it i i consider the episode that we did a mighty heart like our first like truly good episode <laughs> um so there's that as well where, where there's just like a moment where two people really like a movie and really want to talk about a movie and then really talk at length about a movie <laughs> So, um, yeah, I always have a – I always find it interesting. And in this case, he he sort of diverged from his character actor mentality and hired, I think, a bona fide movie star and, and then yeah. turned her into a character actor for the purpose of the movie because I really don't like Angelina Jolie's movie star roles. I don't like her Tomb Raider, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Salt. Salt. Yeah, like it's the same goddamn movie every time, just with a slightly different details. I, 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 but every now and again, just like if you go back into the claim and you watch what he did with Mila Jovovich, who again basically is Angelina right. Jolie light, um, <laughs> and and he gets such a bona fide performance out of Mila Jovovich in the claim. It's it's shocking actually. <laughs> yeah, how good it's easily Jovovich's best performance ever, even if you're a fan of her sort of wacky performance in The Fifth Element, you have to acknowledge <laughs> that this is the first time she's ever played a human being on screen. Yeah. She's really good in the very underseen movie Dummy with uh, Adrian Brody. It's a really... Oh, is that the, 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 the ventriloquist movie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a really weird, twisted indie movie that's sometimes too quirky for its own good. I think Vera Farmiga, that was like one of her first roles, maybe. Um, but no, I, I thought that movie was really charming, but she plays like a punk rock sort of uh, a musician, I think. I think she just plays a musician, but she's really funny and awesome in that movie. It's kind of an underlooked, underappreciated gem, but it's not something I'd say you got to see it, but it's it's really, it's got its charm. So <clears throat> Yeah, I, 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 mostly my reaction to A Mighty Heart was just being totally engrossed 
Yeah. Um, and number one, world building. Obviously, it's a very, very different movie from Code 46, but at and the very same different. time, he's he's establishing the world so well. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and and then I love procedurals, um, especially when they're real and they're not like I don't like stuff like Law and Order because it it it's like it feels it is it, a screenwriter procedural, not a not right. A, yeah. yeah, I, I prefer something like like the the Wire, even even though Homicide. The I've, I've been going back through uh, David Simon's uh, the first movie or the first show. He didn't create it, but it's based on a book he wrote. Uh, homicide life on the street um and there's yeah, and there's a yeah. lot of and it, and like the sort of just uh it doesn't feel like clean in any way it feels it it feels very organic organic and it and it feels very uh, frenzied and exciting like yeah. i feel like law and order they just sort of like wander from set to set and ask questions with little emotion, mm-hmm. and then they get emotional about like murder, even though they like they get they see it a hundred, you know, they've yeah. seen a hundred times. And or they on CSI, you'll get uh... well. CSI is the worst because right. Well, you can't even you can't even you, CSI shouldn't even be mentioned in polite conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I stand on that show. I the mo- I find them actually just real quick. I find the most offensive thing about CSI is the way it completely dehumanizes violence um, into this, like, completely clinical... Like, it's the most clinical, cold kind of... Like, you'll see, like, someone being... Sh- like it, By the way, it's, like, one of the most... For being, like, the biggest show on TV, it's, like, one of the most violent shows, like, that's ever been on just network TV. Like, you'll just see someone's head exploding, like, three times in a row in slow motion... Um, but because it zooms in onto a CGI brain, you yeah. know, and then you cut to David Caruso putting on his sunglasses. <laughs> like I always, I always hated how it turned, how it used violence. Uh, I always, but anyway, hey, welcome to Jerry Bruckheimer world. Yeah, uh, the, the, the thing with CSI that always offended me was the the, the fact that they've 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 turned research labs into these weird sterile blockbuster environments like anyone i work in a research lab so anytime like someone gets like um you know an uh, an hplc result in like five seconds oh, and this perfectly formatted there's always report. like a... it's just it's beyond Ugh. ridiculous like it, yeah it, 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 it's the it's the orwellian you know tell a lie big enough and people will believe it uh, yeah. kind of thing like it is the biggest possible lie Ever. There's always like a fucking six month backlog, or like on those <laughs> those labs, and that's for finger, like, and that's for like labs are unclean, yeah, dirty places with chemical. You you have a chemical burn on a lab bench, and it's there for the rest of the life of that lab bench. It's not these perfect, you know, filed away beakers with glowing liquids in them, and everything, and is- everything is not lit like it's like Tungsten. you know, like. Like it's cool and blue and yeah. dark. Labs are like bright. You gotta fucking see what you're doing. It's not like Gremlins Two, the lab in Gremlins Two. <laughs> no, it's all coils and burbling liquids and. <laughs> oh, and, and it's just like people very lackadaisically, lackadaisically going back and forth and just being like, "Well, I guess this is what." It, like talking to the uh, to the detective, being like, "Well, right now, what I'm doing is no, get out of my way." <laughs> <laughs> the next movie um, that he did. I'm really. I, I know you've seen this one, Kurt, um, and I actually checked out your review. I'm a, I'm a big fan of it, and I'd never ever heard of it, despite the cast. 
and uh, it's called Geneva or Geneva. But it's and yeah, I could never pronounce it right. But yeah. then they renamed it again. Before. Yeah, like that's what it was called originally, and then they renamed it like a summer in yeah. Geneva or something. A summer in Genoa, like they changed the yeah. city name or something. It was. I think it's the same. Like it depends on you know different cities have different names and different languages. Mm-hmm. I think that's the confusion. I think it is set in the city of Genoa. Yeah, I thought it was a really good portrayal of a, of, a, of you know young people dealing with grief and the loss of a parent. And how the father, you know, he he moves to a completely different environment to sort of uh, escape his his feelings about it. But you know, his daughters keep reminding him of um, of the loss that they go through. And Colin Firth is once again very understated and excellent. Um, I don't know this this the, the especially the daughters they're excellent. Too, the daughters are so good in this yeah. movie, and and then it, the one thing that I love about not only does Winterbottom build these weird ecologies of cities like way better than say woody allen's recent tour of towns yeah um that always he, feel like he's a he tourist not only gets into them even when he's a tourist because yeah. almost um in this movie the characters are essentially tourists but he really articulates the danger of big cities oh for and, sure i mean all those scenes when she's on the back of like the moped with the guy yeah. and you're in all this freaking traffic and and the characters mm-hmm. don't even consider themselves in danger the first couple times. But you as a viewer are incredibly tense, especially sure. when it's about like the parental protection of kids and where do you draw the line when you've had a tragedy? Do you overprotect? How do you, you know, where do you do that? I mean, this movie, I believe, is complete. Like I say, every one of his movies is overlooked, but this movie was ignored like if this movie came out after the king's speech when right. i think Colin firth is just a bigger name than he was when this movie then when, when when this movie came out in 07 or whatever um i think the movie would have played better because i i can't see how a movie where you endanger children will not be successful at getting an emotional response from its audience <laughs> like it's one of those right. built-in friggin guarantees and i, I think <sighs> the middle-aged Middle brow crowd could embrace this movie as something edgy. I don't. Absolutely. I don't think the movie's particularly edgy. I think it's incredibly well executed, and and and, and I think it's, it's a, it baffles me when movies like this are ignored. Yeah, it's a very simple story, and it plays out very gradually. Um, but like you said, there are some genuine scenes of uh, tension, children in per- you know peril, and like the, the the shots of the daughters walking out down those long darkened alleyways. And there's really no score. I mean, yeah, there is some here and there, but I think it, it's is, just really effective. This is basically his Dogma movie. What you were saying before about Dogma 95 movies and why they were shot like to look like shit and they were not. There's, this movie was not lit. This yeah. movie was all captured with natural light. And it looks gorgeous. Um, Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like this is the absolute argument of why Dogma '95 movies, you know, are 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 wankery, and I mean, or why that movement failed to be of any lasting interest despite the number of films. Because here is what is essentially a Dogma '95 movie, and and yet it's fantastic looking, it's interesting, it's dramatic, it's yeah. I, I'm a I'm a yeah. big fan of this movie. Me too. I, Me I think too. I might even be quoted on one of the. 
DVD releases because no one reviewed the movie. So they pulled a <laughs> quote from my Twitch review, which is one of the few film reviews of the film. I, I guess it has more reviews now that they finally put it out on DVD. But, I mean, it came out. It played the festival circuit in 08. And I, I don't think I heard a thing about it on, again until 2010. Yeah, I downloaded it through iTunes, and I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this one as well. Um, uh, and we got three movies. We got to get through them pretty quickly. Uh, three more. Uh, Shock Doctrine documentary. Have you seen it? Nope. I've read the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's that. Uh, the Killer Inside Me, yep. which was a very controversial uh, movie uh, because of its v- people Some uh, say excessive violence. I, I did not see this movie, but... Yeah... Uh, I don't know what, like, I guess it was the, that the brutality, the realistic brutality of the violence portrayed that sort of turned me off, but I didn't see any genuine reason to get invested in this character. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm almost felt like, again, too detached, and that might have been the point, <laughs> but, like, it was almost like watching his character from Assassination of Jesse James only, you know, more in the insane, over-the-top, brutal serial killer mode um but i just didn't really find any reason to join this character on his journey at all and, and like his descent into madness was kind of boring for me again well i look at one. i look at the killer inside me again it's it, to me it's kind of a meta movie I okay mean, even though it's actually based on a 1950s novel um it to me it's like what if someone dreamt like it's it's like a fantastical version of noir where the main character is actually insane. So it's kind of like you're watching, you know, like uh, the Usual Suspects would is is um, uh, Verbal Kent's point of view. <laughs> so the whole movie is a lie. That's what to me watching the killer inside me. It's like watching this universe that's within the mind of the main character but at the same point the main character is not aware of it and i don't know it just to me it's just a very fascinating movie and like the 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 ending when the movie really gets weird at the ending sort of underscores that you've kind of been lied to as a viewer as to what exactly is going on i i I understand why people do not like this movie, but at the same point, I don't believe it. I believe it's unfairly written off in the same way that Code 46 is unfairly written off. I won't go to bat for it like I will Code 46, but I. it took me a long time to see it. It didn't hmm. play in Canada. so yeah. um, Maybe I just have a real aversion to stoic lead characters. <laughs> I don't know. It's a pretty common thing in his filmography. Sure. Yeah, I could see that for sure. I mean... But, Unless he has Steve Coogan. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of, uh, his next movie was actually a TV series that he edited down uh, into a feature film uh, called The Trip. I did see this on demand. By the way, I still owe my parents six bucks. I didn't. Ouch. (laughs) I forgot to pay them. But uh, it's a very funny movie. It's, it's, again, it's very light. Um, And, again, he establishes such a... Even for a silly kind of very light movie like this, he establishes such a reality with like the shots of the the wait staff and not the wait staff the uh, the cook the chefs in the back yeah cooking up and and uh, just all the shots of the country and uh, like such a sense of location and uh, and of course this feels more real because most it's almost one hundred percent improvised. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they, they said, because I was at the uh, 
premiere for this at TIFF uh, last year, and they said they um, they shot they had dinner at each restaurant three times. Oh, okay. And what you see on screen is an amalgamation of those three filming. Like they had a couple cameras. They filmed each dinner. They did some chef stuff three times. They made they, they ate the same meal three times, if I remember correctly, of how how Winterbottom was explaining it from during the Q and A or whatever. And they they took the best shots. I mean, they did some rehearsals and they did some planning, but it was like it was basically a controlled ad libbing. And then they they took the best out of those three the three shots for you know and, and i've never seen the tv show version of it I only, i've only seen the feature i love the feature because i really do love the bride and coogan chemistry and yeah. they, they seem determined not to reinvent it it's the it's the same yeah. in micro in in 24-hour party people it's totally the same in tristram shandy and yeah. it's totally the same here but it it very much works and the only thing i don't like about the trip is that it the whole like I do like the conversations that Bryden has with his wife and the and this sort of weird relationship that Coogan has with his girlfriend and mm-hmm. how they try and fold that into the characters. I just felt like it it felt too written. Yes, like it yeah. felt too. Ugh. I would agree with like, that. Oh my goodness! Was, yeah, but it felt a little overbearing. Oh, I think you cut out, Kurt. Oh, sorry. When they're just sitting at the table, and, and and like if the whole movie was just them ad-libbing, and they they didn't feel the need to make a dramatic arc with it, like I think more the like movie my, dinner with, my, my dinner with my dinner with Andre, Andre kind of a thing. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah, no. there's scenes together, like you, just at the, at the restaurants. Yeah, we're we're all amazing, and their dynamic they share is really great throughout the whole movie. And it's and again, I like that. I feel like it's you don't comedies now have to be so big and they have to I like that it's it feels so rare that there are comedies like nowadays that don't you don't feel like they're trying to hit a uh oh, what's the what's Poop. the word they're they're trying to hit a that's not the word I'm looking for they're trying to hit a uh um what's uh, da, da, quota like they're trying to hit a laughs per minute quota yeah like they're afraid to let things play out, and they're afraid to let things be a little lopsided. Um, so even though this wasn't like a, you know, hysterical movie, it's I, f- I feel like, you know, it, it sort of reminded it at least for me, like it sort of reminded me how valuable like indie comedies can be because, because unlike so many mainstream Hollywood comedies now, it doesn't feel like, like just cranking them yeah, out it feels so the, much more like the, the, real they're, and they're embracing breathe. they're embracing the silent moments the right. little the awkward pauses and those yeah, types, that, and that's those very beats. british i mean certainly with the office and, right. and alan partridge they, they, they that, that, they've that started years ago but it's nice to see that it's not dead in feature films as well yeah and and it's and also i will say i didn't learn until after i saw it that it was a tv show edited and it's well, well, like t- for a show that had uh, how many episodes did this six. show? Okay, so it was for six episodes, and how long was how long were the episodes? Like, like six thirty minutes, I would think. Like probably thirty minutes on the nose, knowing the BBC. Yeah, yeah. So for like a to edit, you know, three hours down into this tight sort of. Uh, oh, actually, let me go ahead and look up. I th- I, yeah, I feel like most of Winterbottom's movies are T- tight, perfect, perfectly length. Or perfectly yeah, the claim is probably his longest film, right? Um, and it's 
pretty close, if not longer than two hours. But it it's kind of big too. I I mean, he well, I don't know. He either goes crazy like. Tristram Shandy and and 24-Hour Party People where there's so many characters it's not going to bother with any of them or he boils it down to one or two. Um, But the claim has sort of an ensemble where everyone is treated with a full arc and so he needs the extra runtime for it. And I, I, I absolutely adore Michael Winterbottom because he takes a character actor like Peter Mullen, who's awesome. He's a director as well, but I mean, he's just a great character actor. I mean, people know him as Mother Superior in Train Spotting, or the crazy soldier in um, Children of Men uh, or the, the, the coal barge driver in, in Young Adam or, or whatever. He's one of these guys that he pops up all over the oh, place he, in small character play, roles. Has he played Sid in Children of Men? Sure, Sid, your, yeah. your food Crazy right. Sid, yes. Crazy <laughs> Sid. Oh, yeah, Love yeah, Sid. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, he's great. To put him as a central starring role in a movie is just awesome to <laughs> yes. me. Like, like he and and not only that, make him so unlikable. Like, yeah. I mean, if you watch the claim, he's he's interesting because he's kind of like the Gene Hackman in Unforgiven, like the <laughs> the sort of totalitarian ruler in this small little western town that he built with his bare hands. But then when it goes in, like I don't know, his backstory. One third of the way through the movie when yeah. you realize that he literally sold his wife and daughter for a gold claim. I mean, there's your end to yeah. liking that character. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Yeah. There's Great. no chance you can even respect the guy at that point. And then they're saying, still, he's going to be our main character and we're going to follow. Everyone is in orbit of him. We're going to follow him around. And I, the only the only movie I can think of that really pulls that off in that sort of setting is There Will Be Blood. Um and and there will be blood gets to play things bigger and broader, whereas right. the claim keeps everything very grounded and 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 very realistic. I, I, I yeah. If, if if there's a movie that I if I don't beat Code Forty Six into people, I try to beat the claim into people. Yeah. This is a well mounted, handsome period piece that does things totally different without you even realizing it until it's over. <laughs> that they've done that they've totally thrown the book out the window to tell this movie. And yeah. uh, and Michael Winterbaum takes these risks and. Sure, his movies, you know, they they may they may toil in obs- unfairly in obscurity, but seventeen seventeen films in fifteen years, he's that's pretty impressive, and he's continuing to make the kind of films he wants to. Uh, yeah, and he's got five other future projects lined up. I'm sure, <laughs> one, probably with Steve Coogan, well, at least one of they're, them. They're either with Steve Coogan or they're Thomas Hardy novels. Because, <laughs> okay, fine, <laughs> because I can get behind he seems that. Seems to like these these things or whatever. Yeah. But uh, well, one yeah, one thing we keep forgetting to do, uh, at least with the last couple episodes, is stating um, what we feel are our top three favorite movies that we watched of Winterbottom. Yeah, so of, of uh, the director. Of the direct- yeah, yeah, so uh, I'll I'll start. Uh, my favorite one is obvi- uh, 24-Hour Party People, um, then Tristram Shandy, and then A Mighty Heart. Mine would be 24-Hour Party People, and then A Mighty Heart, and then I'm probably going to go with uh, Geneva or Geneva, I think. Oh, yeah. and mine would be um, uh, Code 45. Code 46, then uh, Tristram Shandy, then um, The Claim. Excellent. Yeah, The Claim would be right up there, too. So that was very good. 
All right, we're about ready to wrap up this epic length episode. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, wherever I go, I bloat the runtime. No, that's fine. That's <laughs> totally fine by us. You were you were great. We, we were really expecting it. it. And no, we were, yeah. we were lucky. We didn't get any. We didn't have to deal with any letters. Yeah, that really helped out a lot. Otherwise, we would have been pushing three and a half hours. Yeah. But All right. <laughs> we're very happy that you were on, Kurt. Um, Absolutely. We we're, do have well, to. We do have to commend you really quickly on. Uh, you know, introducing us to Joseph Losey, which we probably consider to be our one of our big kickoff episodes where we really were excited to talk about his work, and we owe a lot of debt to you for that. For Absolutely, I'm glad. I'm just glad that that. Well, I think anyone that sits down and watches The Servant is going to love The Servant. There's no yeah. way not to like that movie. And that's on. By um, the way, I think I said this already, but uh, just in case you haven't, that is on Netflix Instant now. It's a very hard to find film, but yeah. that's on Instant now. So. Watch that, people. Please do, yeah. So, let's uh, wrap things up. Thanks again, Kurt, for, well, for being well, on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It was yeah. a, it was an absolute blast to talk yeah. about. I know a lot of the filmmakers that you guys have are, are big filmmakers that people are really aware of, and, and, and that's cool. I mean, that's awesome to talk about, um, you know, names that people know, but there are filmmakers like Joseph Losey and, and Michael Winterbottom that are turning out just top, not stuff and they just need that extra push to get people to watch their films Absolutely. which I think people will fall in love with and I, and I really think that podcasting and blogging is best served not to tell people what they already know about Michael Bay films or or <laughs> Steven Spielberg films but you know to, to, to actually give a little bit of love to these guys that are that are right on the edge of, of, of awareness um, yeah. you know and, and it shouldn't have to be a fucking uh What's that Danny Boyle movie um, with the million dollar Slumdog Millionaire? It shouldn't have to be. Danny Boyle should not have to make a piece of shit like Slumdog Millionaire to get people to watch other Danny <laughs> Boyle like movies, that. which are great. But uh, it's just a shame that sometimes, you know, this thing happens accidentally. I, I would rather it happen to people talk about the good movies and and you know have that come out or whatever. So well, maybe it's a backhanded compliment our, to Danny Boyle, but <laughs> our, who I really love, I just don't yeah. like that one movie. Interesting. Well, that's his most beloved too. But that's interesting. Um, next year, we're we're planning on tackling a lot more obscure filmmakers, definitely, and sort of going outside of our comfort zone. We're just sort of diving into filmmakers that we're really interested in talking about and having guests on. And next episode will be an epic slam down yes. or slam up, <laughs> depending on where you fall. But it'll be it'll be a great. It'll be a whole new format, kind of, at least with having two guests on. For Brian De Palma. One yeah. despises Brian De Palma. One adores Brian De Palma. And I, I, I really love him. I luck with my co-host, Matthew Gamble, <laughs> because <laughs> he, he can be quite acerbic, or at least when he talks to me. Maybe he will respect you more and, uh, and gun uh, and be polite and I'm, nice. But I'm going to say, I'm gonna... he does not like De Palma. We've had two or three pretty epic De Palma fights on our show. So I'll be a little I, disappointed I if he isn't. For anyway, you can go back through our archives if you can find yeah. them to get a guess where he's going to land on a few things. Yeah, well, he called me a pussy on one of his <laughs> podcast so it's yeah. gonna be interesting no yeah. i'm just kidding um no I, I the reason why i wanted to have him on is because i was screaming at my ipod when you guys were having one of those epic <laughs> battles about De Palma. i'm like what the fuck what's wrong with you no <laughs> all right so, so join uh, us next time on yeah. the directors club podcast visit us at directors club podcast.com 
Our Twitter is at DC Podcast. Yes, it is. Our email is directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, my Twitter is at Patrick Rapol. And mine is at Instant Jim. And so, uh, anything else you want to plug, Kurt? Yeah, anything going on? Uh, well, someday, someday we will get we we ought to have you guys on this show as well. We 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 have a very irregular podcast, even more irregular lately, um, uh, which is kind of like what you guys do with directors, but we do it with just films, right? Um, and it's the the movie club podcast, big fan. Um, <laughs> and uh, we generally take two films. Uh, sometimes we take more, but almost always it's two films usually linked with some sort of theme and we just have various different folks so we we've had a couple of the twitch writers on we've had a couple of the well the film junk guys are regulars we got a, some of the row three people we even had a listener um uh who was very enthusiastic uh, come on the show um and uh, we we it's been months because i uh, there's just been a lot of stuff going on for all of us sure. to just get together and do it but we're supposed to eventually record um, our weird, fun, oddball uh, science fiction movies. It's supposed to be Flash Gordon, um, the John – is it John? No, it's not John Borman because the other one's John Borman. So it's going to be Flash Gordon and um, Zardoz. And uh, that <laughs> hopefully will be recorded sometime in August. Flash uh, Gordon I, is Mike Hodges. Yeah. Mike Hodges, thank you. Um, well, so, if you ever yeah, – if you ever have, if you ever want to talk, Mister Nobody, you know who to call. Uh, on that particular show, it would never happen because the show would almost be written before we started the show, right? Because <laughs> we've Andrew and I have praised Mister Nobody a lot on the Row Three yeah, show, and the Film Junk guys have bashed Mister Nobody a lot on their show. So in reality. With with audacity or whatever garage band or whatever sounded, you could make your own <laughs> movie club <laughs> podcast for that movie by just editing chunks of the two shows. And I know we That's call so each true. other out. So it's this weird shouting over the fence kind of approach to doing that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Fun times, though. Oh, as always, I, I love all the, the, the entire podcasting community out there. And you guys do, do great work. So everybody check... Um, you know, stay tuned to row3.com for future episodes of your podcast as well. And all the great writers there at that site too. And, um, I, I'm actually going to be contributing a, a review of the swell season documentary. I, I let Andrew know about that. So I'll be getting to you. To, I'll be getting you that review in the next week or so. And he's a huge, huge, ridiculously huge once fan. Yeah. Andrew is. As well. He should be. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. We will see you next time for Brian De Palma. All right. See you later. Hi, welcome to Walmart. I love you. Hi, welcome to Walmart. I love you. Hi, welcome to Walmart. I love you. you.